Yeah. Is there like a genre you would never touch? You seem to do something different with every film. Space movie, I'd never touch again. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? They're very tough to do. Yeah. They're very time consuming. And it is, I mean, just like it is for people going out there, it's completely, we shouldn't be there. It's hostile, it's impossible. It's very, very, you know, frightening and wonderful place, but sure. very difficult to. Everything, everything on our planet is gravity right. that holds us down. And yet, as soon as you make a film out there, you've got to defy it, you know, and it's very tough to do. So I'd never go back into space. And nor would any other director. All the directors that you can think of, they only ever make one space movie, <laughs> and then they just leave well alone. It's enough for a lifetime. Welcome to an exciting episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. This is the show where we take a second look at all the films that either bombed at the box office or just didn't do well with the critics. I'm one of your hosts, Troy, and with me is, I don't know, probably one of my best friends in the entire world and the co-host of this show, Mr. Brad Anderson. Brad, happy February 21st. How are you doing this evening? Doing great, man. Just got back from Cancun and boy, my arm's tired. Hello. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> that, uh, that is the epitome of a dad joke. So listen, yep. this is your pick. It's episode 37. What did you pick this evening? I picked um, a 2007 science fiction film about saving the world called Sunshine, directed by Danny Boyle and written by Alex Garland, which I believe our guest was on last time we spoke about an out. Al- well, yeah, Alex Garland wrote dread right that is correct and okay you're absolutely right we have a guest this week so he's been on a couple of episodes um primarily dread and streets of fire and he is one of our best friends and i'm so excited anytime we get together and talk films so i I can't wait uh to dive into this but none other none other than brett saxton has joined the show brett how you doing (laughs) We got applause now. Yeah, everybody right. is so excited for you, man. Congrats. Thrilled. Looking forward to this discussion a lot. Thanks for having me back. No, this this will be fun. And Sunshine is one of those uh, Hollywood films that relies heavily on science, right? Science and math. So I thought it would be Your fun. Your favorite things in the world, right, Troy? My two <laughs> least favorite things in the world is science and math. So I, I thought it would be fun, though, before we get into talking about Sunshine, is, you know, talk about moments when Hollywood got the science wrong or, or just bad science in movies. Uh, so I, I don't know how many moments that you were able to gather from, from maybe some of your favorite films. And, and here's the thing. I, I never walk into a movie. I don't know about you guys. I never walk into a movie expecting that all the science and the math is just going to be 100% correct. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're having a lot of fun or you're into the characters, et cetera, you just throw plausibility out the door. But I think there are some huge mistakes and some, I don't know, high-profile films that are always fun to talk about. So, Brett, I'm going to start with you since you're our guest and everybody loves you because you got applause (laughs) when we announced your name. are, Are there any moments where you were just shaking your head at just what Hollywood was putting up on screen when it came to just science or scientists in general. Yeah, so 
I don't know about the inaccuracy of this, but one moment for me that I always love when it comes on TV, when I watch the film, is in Armageddon when Jason Isaacs is at the table talking to the other NASA scientists about his wife opening the ketchup bottle for him. That whole scene, I think, is outstanding. <laughs> when he's talking about the firecracker and the hand and you don't want to listen to a guy that got a C in astrophysics. I mean, that's that whole scene is great. Jason Isaacs, I think, eats it up. I, I think that Can whole- you just say Armageddon in general is like <laughs> <laughs> bad science all the way through? Like all, all the way they through. They couldn't train astronauts to drill. They had to take <laughs> guys who yeah, yeah. That is an absolutely ridiculous film. There is not is there anything scientifically correct in Armageddon? I can't think of anything. No. Um uh, Bruce Willis is uh schematics for the uh the drilling machine is another great scene with just this rugged oil driller you're expected to believe has built this sophisticated enough machine to fly thousands of miles into space to save the world. I, I also so- saw that if the asteroid was as big as Texas, like they said it would. We would be able to have seen it like years before. Like there would be no way that we wouldn't be able to see it. it. It's like 18 days. Yeah, like <laughs> sneaking up on people. And it's the size of Texas. It's like, no, we would we would see it at some point in time. Small details, man. Small details. You know, right. whatever. Yeah. Okay. So, Brad, do you, do you have a pick? I do. So I would be amiss if I didn't speak about Star Wars. And everyone's going to go to this one. But I had to talk about it. It is what we call the Parsec syndrome, which Solo says that he, you know, does this this journey, uh, and he's talking about doing it in twelve parsecs. Twelve parsecs is a parsec is not a measurement of time; it's distance, which is roughly like oh god, here I go, uh, oh, yeah. nineteen trillion miles. What? So you know, that's like what he's. I think one parsec is like 19 trillion miles or something like that. So anyway, that whole shenanigan. Also, let's see, in Empire, when they're when they have no light speed, the canonical distance between the planets they're going from is like I want to say it's like five times 10 to the fourth power light years. What? So the what? journey would actually take them like wow. five thousand miles <laughs> or about five thousand years to travel the distance without light speed. So you know. Oh, so oh, I have a question. <laughs> when when you were watching Empire Strikes Back and That's what I took away from Empire, you know. So not when you're watching this film, you're like, Don't "Wait a second. Me. Hold on." And you took your calculator out or started writing notes because that was throwing you off at that time or was this something that I don't know, you just discovered later on? No, I mean, people have talked about it before and I I went back because unlike you, I like math. So I, I looked Ugh. at the, the physics behind those two things. Um, Austra- also, when they go through the asteroid belt, I think the average distance between asteroids is like 600,000 miles. So like the Millennium Falcon would be fine driving through an asteroid belt. We always like have this misconception that an asteroid belt is like really dense with asteroids. It's actually not. I mean, because it's, it's in space. It's so always dense. And every movie that has an asteroid belt, it's always dense. Yeah, Can but you it's name not, a movie not the case. that. Oh Lord! Yeah. I, I thought you were going to point out, and I I think I just discovered. But it's about this. space wizards, and they can use the force. But, you know, <laughs> well, whatever. speaking of space wizards, but apparently in some scenes when they're using the lightsaber, since it's a lightsaber, it should cast no shadow, correct? But you can actually we, see the line of the sticks that they were using at the time yes, for the lightsaber. Yes, definitely a New Hope. It was, it was. They were definitely sticks in New Hope. So yes. Okay, 
Well, uh, Brett, do you, uh, so here's – I've found three of them, so I'm going to share one. And this is the okay. one that the, the minute that this happened on screen, in my head I'm like, oh, my God, we're in for a horrible ride. But it comes from none other than 2008's Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. So specifically towards the beginning of the film, and I, I got to tell you, huge Indiana Jones fan, obviously grew up on it, was so excited, uh, took my son to this film, and we ended up seeing it twice because he absolutely loved it. But, you know, he was pretty young uh, of age at that time. But when Indy hides in a fridge during a nu nuclear explosion, and then the blast, like, takes the refrigerator, I don't know, like 20 miles away and throws it down the road, and then he gets out of it and walks away because it's... <laughs> lined with that was absolutely ridiculous and at that point you knew exactly what kind of movie you're getting into yeah, you're watching a cartoon it, yeah with shia labeouf like flying through the trees with the monkeys and everything else but man that that comes right at the beginning of the film and my heart just sank when that happened it was absolutely <laughs> ridiculous like, how many bones is he breaking when that even if he survives the blast, how many bones is he breaking that brittle old man when it hits the ground and he's inside of it with no padding? I mean, apparently, literally, apparently yeah, lead dust. is padding as well. Yeah. It protects you from nuclear radiation. Plus it provides padding. <laughs> yeah. Make no sense. Well, do you guys have any others, Brett? Did you, was that the only one you picked or kind of, well, I mean, the other movie that, that I think this isn't necessarily bad science. I was, as I got to thinking about this, Interstellar comes to mind as a movie kind of in the, the opposite vein that I think Nolan really took his time and got right. At least I, I'm not a, obviously an expert on black holes and all of that, but it seems like the more I read about Interstellar, it's really fascinating looking into that whole sort of world. And I think that's what we'll get into a little bit uh, in today. Yeah, I think that's no, like – scientists have said that's like maybe the closest depiction of a black hole in, in cinema, like correctly. So yeah, I, thought, I mean, I think that's pretty cool. Um, You're saying Disney's version of the black hole where they go through the black hole and it looks like, I don't know, landscapes of hell. That was inaccurate. Okay. Interstellar okay, was. Yes. All right. Okay. That's a good one. Brad, any more? I just have an honorable mention for everything that the core does. The movie, the core. Oh, okay. That literally like, you know, they're, they're going to the core of the earth and they actually at one point in time get out and they're just like, Oh boy, it's a little hot. And you're like, uh, <laughs> no, like I can't even eat a freaking like pizza roll without burning my mouth. And that's a 350 degree oven. But, okay. You can go to the core of the earth and just sweat a little bit. Okay. I get it. That was the and, like, was at, that the Morgan at Freeman one point film? in time, like the suits are like, Oh, they can only go up to like, they can only withstand temperatures of 4,500 degrees. And like, it's 9,000 degrees now. And I'm like, that's double. I don't know if like those people are dead. So yes, that is the Hillary Swank. Because uh, weren't there two films? Like there was the core and wasn't there another one that came about at the same time? The deep. No. You're, no, you're thinking of deep impact in. Yeah, that one. Armageddon. That's that. Okay. Yeah. And then you're thinking of Dante's Peak and Volcano. Volcano. So though you know they had those the the twos two films were coming out that were the exact same all the time there for a while so a lot of copycats out there in Hollywood you so, think oh uh, yeah the the other two that I thought of um, and this one annoys me even though I kind of like the film actually I do like the film but 
the things that happen in the film really irritate me. And it goes under this genre that happens in films a lot. So you get scientists, especially in science fiction films. And the thing that always annoys me is that scientists never act um, scientific-like or use common sense, right? So I'm going to pick on a movie from 2012 called Prometheus. And I know exactly what you're going to say. Yeah, so you have this, I, I believe... He is a biologist and he comes across this snake looking cobra head thing and it shows its teeth and, and it's hissing at him or something. It makes some kind of noise, but you're, you're in space, you're a biologist, this thing rears its ugly, gross head at you and he starts cooing it, like wants to cuddle with it, talk with it, and then it bites him. So I, I feel like that happens a lot in these space films where you have somebody who's supposed to have this PhD, but they just start touching things that they shouldn't be touching. I think I think this was a big problem in a film we we reviewed, Event Horizon, which really annoys me. It it just gets under my skin when you put a scientist in space. They're supposed to know better, and and you go to a foreign world or you come across something you've just never encountered before, and you're gonna take a stick and poke it like that. That makes no sense to me. That actually comes after they take off their helmets too. They're on like a right. another planet, and they're like, "Oh yeah, ah, it says it's okay. Let's take our helmets off." And I'm like, ah, "Yeah, come on, guys." That whole movie is. I've been wearing a mask for 18 months. Keep your helmet on. Yeah, kind of, kind of ridiculous. And then, and then the other movie that I was going to mention, uh, and I, I guess it's kind of topical, but at at the time this movie came out, I was reading a book called The Hot Zone by Richard Preston. So it was about the Ebola virus. And if you haven't read that book, it's fantastic. But Hollywood took that um, virus and started to make sort of a, an action thriller adventure film based around it. And it was none other than 1995's Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman, Rene Russo. And it it just... Morgan is, Freeman in that movie? Uh, yeah, probably. I, I feel like Morgan Freeman's in everything that is disaster related because he adds what, you know gravitas and and some authority to whatever he's saying but if if you if you know anything about viruses obviously the pace at which a disease spreads within that film is totally implausible and their reaction to it is absolutely just um you know you you get to the concept of you know creating a ring around the infected area but how they treat that is just absolutely ridiculous and what's even more ridiculous is this whole third act where they discover that the origin is a monkey. And so they're chasing a monkey down. And as soon as they get the monkey, they can create a virus about the same time it takes to create a cup of coffee. And then all of a sudden, a vaccine. Saved. yeah, a, right. a vaccine yeah. for the virus. Yeah. Absolutely ridiculous. And that movie, I think it's directed by Wolfgang Peterson, who's a really good director. Yeah, you're right. He, I mean, he's done one of my favorite Clint Eastwood movies in the line of fire i think is what it was called the secret service film and mm -hmm. he's he's really good at crafting thrillers but man there is no caliber of high profile actor that can save that piece of trash simply because if you know anything about how the common cold freaking works then the entire premise of that film just sort of breaks down so and what i find really kind of um i i don't know when when covid broke out you know, March of, of 2020, two of the most popular films that were popping up on streaming services was Contagion and Outbreak. And that kind of annoys me because when people get into a panic state, they, they will tend to go look for the glamorized version of it. 
and and I think outbreak really just sets the wrong expectation for everybody across the board, especially if you're looking for, you know, some type of secret serum or um, cure out there for COVID and you look at outbreak and go, well, they should have gotten it by now. That, that's just not how that stuff works, right? The whole vaccine thing. But that that's my third pick of just when Hollywood gets it totally wrong. Any, any others you got? No, I'm out. That's it. You're out. So then we can move on to a science heavy film that you pick, Brad, which is none other than Sunshine in 2007. So the, the basic plot for this thing, because I, I know that's one of the things that we generally kind of gloss over, but this one's pretty easy to talk about. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. The sun is dying, correct? Dying. Yep. yep. Okay. So it's dying. And the solution is to put a bunch of astronauts out in space with a bunch of explosives and then throw the explosives into the sun to get it going again, right? They're jump-starting their car, Troy. They're jump-starting the sun. All right. Yes. <laughs> and that that is the premise of our film tonight. I, I'm just curious. Why, why did you pick this one? Um, I, I love science fiction. I love space science fiction. Um, I love end of the world. We're on a mission to save humanity. Um, we're just a bunch of ragtag scientists. Um, so it's kind of checking all those boxes and we haven't talked about Danny Boyle yet. And I was like, I want to talk about Danny Boyle and I know Brett loves this movie. So I was like, we got to talk about sunshine. We got to talk about sunshine. So yeah. And that, that's yeah. why we have you on Brett, because I know when we were originally putting a list together, sunshine was on the list. When you saw that list, you carved this one out, right? I did. I I love this movie and then not spoiler alert, but um, I'm really looking forward to hearing what you guys think about it and diving into that whole discussion. Okay. Now, did both of you see this in the movie theater or was this something that you discovered on home media? I don't I think I saw not. this in the theater. Yeah, I did not. Okay. So I I've seen it in the theater and then I've seen it on home media. All right, cool. So when this thing came out, Danny Boyle wasn't an Academy Award-winning director at the time. So this is pre the high-profile films that he was getting nominated for. But, Brad, how did this movie do when it was graced into the movie theaters of the United States? Dude, you have to listen to these stats. So $40 million budget, which I think is is for the visual style and stuff that they get with $40 million, I think that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, domestic gross for this movie. $3.65 million in the U S um, in the U S okay. internationally, it grosses about 31. So it's right at $34.8 million total. So it has a soft sort of, it was weird. So it released on July 20th, but it only opened in 10 theaters the week after it opened in, it was like 461 theaters and it grossed $1.6 million. It's kind of wide release. Um, so never really got a huge release. Um, I don't know why it's, well, this is a it's Fox, Fox Searchlight. Yeah. So, you know, it's, that's their kind of independent sort of label. Um, so I know, you know, it's not getting the 3000 theater, but I was expecting to see like 1500, but maybe that's just me. Right. It, it wasn't a huge release. It was a Fox Searchlight, which is sort of their independent film arm. And I, I think at the time Fox was kind of, looking at this as a gamble because they were not having a lot of hits. I, I think that year, did they 
did they take a hit with Alien versus Predator Requiem as well? Science fiction was not doing so hot that year, if I remember. Yeah, correctly. I think you're right. Or was that the first one? No, I think the first one was way sooner than that. So yeah, I think you're right with Requiem there. Yeah. Okay. And, so, and I know that they had they were reeling a little bit and hesitant because Solaris they had released and that had bombed. Oh right, yeah, that was the so, other one, the George Clooney remake. Yeah. And so they really. They felt like this was too similar to that film, so I don't think they wanted to put a whole lot into it. And so I think that's where media stepped up and took over distribution. It it is interesting to spend forty million on a film, an independent film, and then turn around and really not give it a big push in terms of theatrical screenings. So that lets me know because if you know anything about. I don't know, Hollywood executives, et cetera. They do the preview screening and the test audience, et cetera. And they get all this data in before they release something. So I'm wondering if the studio looked at this and said, wow, this isn't testing well. Uh, the The execs saw it. They, they were not a fan of it or something of that nature because it, it feels like they were not really pushing this thing. And I, I got to be honest, I got to see it in, the, in a theater but I only went to go see it because of Danny Boyle. I, I don't even remember seeing much in terms of advertising or marketing at the time when it came out. So this was five years after after 28 Days, right? That's 2002, right? Something like that? Yeah, 28 Days. That, well, mm-hmm. yeah, you've got 28 Days Later was 2002. Okay. So up until then, he had done, you know, train spotting, which was, you know, kind of his coming out party. We'll get into it, but yes. yes. Okay. Yep. yep. Okay. Sorry. I don't want you to step on your toes, Troy. No, no, no. Oh. That's good. Okay. So Rotten Tomatoes, um, 77% with the critics and a 73% with audience. So they're pretty much right in line. You know, I, I think anytime you get a, I guess we're going to call this high concept science fiction where you're like, you're taking this concept of science and space and all this stuff and, and reigniting the, the sun and you can get like, almost 80% of people saying it's a good movie. I think that's pretty good. Do you all want to go in the Wayback Machine to the releases from July of 2007? Because there's some interesting ones. Troy, there's a huge one. A huge one. We were we just texted about this movie. Uh-oh. July 26th of 2007, a film called Flashpoint comes out. With Donnie Yen. With Donnie Yen. Donnie yes. Yen. Um, okay. <laughs> Which so should have won, some, it should have made a billion dollars, but oh yeah, okay. it should be the it highest did. grossing film of all time. But, I, you know, I agree. Yeah, um, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix was out. Um, I pronounce you Chuck and Larry, which is appalling. Uh, Hairspray, uh, that movie Shoot 'Em Up with uh, Clive Owen, amazing yeah. film, amazing film. The probably is, is that Monica Bellucci? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Shoot 'em up will be on this. Oh, we are talking about shoot 'em up. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Rescue Dawn um, oh. with our, our friend Verna Herzog. Yes. License to Wed. Uh, Transformers came out that year, that time frame. Okay. And I just want to shout out I don't know, this obviously didn't get a wide release, but a horror film called Frontiers came out. Mm. Uh, Frontier with the, the S. Um, Really good horror movie. I love that movie. It's a rough um, watch, though. It is a rough watch, but yeah, very good. So, yeah, so that's kind of the context of when this movie came out. Some big films uh, coming out when this one comes out. So you can kind of see, you know, Transformers is huge. I, you know, even though Chuck and Larry is 
offensive. It's, you know, an Adam Sandler movie, so it's getting a lot of theaters. So you can see there might not have been a whole lot of room for this thing to kind of catch on because there's so much big stuff. I mean, they, they released this movie in the summer. That's strange to me. That that really, it this feels like something that would get a release in the fall or maybe the spring. Yeah. I, I just, I, because there's not, um, especially when we start talking about the cast, there's nothing here that I think sells tickets out of the door. Not in 2007, no. Yeah. And, and keep in mind too, I, I can't think, uh, so Brett, you talk about Solaris as one of the science fictions that come out around that time, but you also talked about Armageddon. So Armageddon was like a huge freaking hit, right? But that was like 1998. So yeah. this one comes out nine years after, and it, it really does feel like a pet project for Danny um, Boyle. It, it doesn't seem like it's the studio trying to chase after trend. I mean, it, it kind of sits on its own, right? Yeah, there's no question. that there's, you Kind of like you hinted at, there's no, nothing about this film that says tentpole, nothing about it says so. Summer was definitely a strange, uh, strange decision to release that when they did. But um, if, if you read about the film, you know, this is something that Danny Boyle, you know, he said this at the time after this, he said it was sort of an exhausting thing to do to make a, a sci-fi film like this. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I, I think that explains a lot. You know, Transformers isn't exactly a, <laughs> a difficult film to comprehend whereas this is much more um, i don't know i have a hard time understanding what the hell is going on <laughs> <laughs> um it's it's not exactly a trick listen i enjoyed the first transformers i'm not saying anything. it's just that i think this film certainly has an audience that like we said at the time there was a specific audience that i think was anticipating this film. i don't think the wide audience necessarily even really knew about it. Yeah, that, that's a good point. So it it brings us to the discussion about the people behind the camera and in front of the camera. And right out of the gate, we got to talk about Danny Boyle. So he, I, I don't think you can deny in terms of modern directors, Danny Boyle has 100% made, I don't know, a significant contribution to, to film. He's, he's an Academy Award winner. And he has such an eclectic filmography. What what I've always liked about Danny Boyle is if you look at all of the movies that he's done, he hasn't like picked a genre and just stayed there. He experiments and, and he's going into different genres. Now, he did a lot of TV before he got into film, but I don't know if you guys saw his first theatrical film from 1994, Shallow Grave with Ewan McGregor. Did you guys ever catch that? I have not seen that. So Shallow Grave was something that I ended up seeing after seeing his second film, Train Spotting, in 96. And I think Train Spotting was one of those that when Miramax, say what you will about the oh, Weinsteins boy, and everything else. Yeah, but Miramax was putting out some movies at that time period that if you were a fan of independent film, they were knocking them out of the ballpark. But Train Spotting was huge i think for for anybody who was a cinephyte and when i discovered danny boyle it was like oh he did one movie before that and went back and watched shallow grave it's a fantastic thriller like if and i would say shallow grave and train spotting were the two films that made me think okay i really i really need to watch what this guy does and he did a life less ordinary and i saw that film and i'm like oh i 
guess he's a two-hit wonder. I, I don't know. I just, I don't, Life Less Ordinary, I don't know if you guys saw it. It was one of those films that as soon, it kind of put Danny Boyle in the back. Like, I wasn't rushing out to see a Danny Boyle film after that because even then he saw, he did The Beach with Leonardo DiCaprio in 2000. Never saw yeah. it. I, I just, and still to this day, I, I see the trailer, not interested. Have you guys? I've seen The Beach, yes. Okay. I have seen The Beach. It's, I wouldn't rush out to see it troy if, if you haven't already well and it and it's funny because we're going to talk about the person who did the screenplay alex garland in the beach is his novel so danny boyle hooks up with alex garland at this time they create the film the beach he goes on to do 28 days later which uh, so i think there was some controversy when this came out because of the walking dead comic book hitting about the same time then you get into the whole fast zombies. I mean, what did you guys think about 20 days later? Personally, I love it. I, I think it's got some third act problems. <laughs> so, you know, that might be a common theme, but uh, I think the opening of that movie and, and, and with Cillian Murphy kind of lost and alone is it's got an amazing sort of intro to this world. Um, I think it kind of peters out, but I, I think that first, you know, 25 to 30 minutes is pretty amazing. So yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of both it and the sequel. I, I, I like 28. What is it? Months later as 28 well. Weeks. I, 28 weeks, later. weeks. Yeah. yeah. 28 weeks later. I thought the opening 28 weeks later was incredible. I, I still think it's one of my awesome opening scene. And of course, soundtracks are like the soundtracks are the classics. Yeah. Both the, of them. Those are sunshine too. We'll get into it. Yeah. Those are, I really think put the zombie film towards a different direction and they're a lot of fun to watch. Now, (laughs) if you were to ask me like, what is your favorite Danny Boyle film? It's the next one that he did actually. And, and honestly, when I watched it, I didn't even know it was a Danny Boyle film. I just discovered it based on the premise and I thought it was a good premise. And I've, I've always loved this film. I, I mean, I still love train spotting, shallow grave, et cetera, but I don't know if you guys ever saw millions from 2004. It is a fantastic look. If, if you're going through his filmography and you haven't seen a lot of his films, go check out millions. It has a kind of a cool little premise. I think it's one of his most personal films. It does deal with religion. Um, but it's, it's such a good, fantastic performance. When you're talking about kids performances, the lead actor in Millions is just fantastic, and I think it's a really well-written script. It's it's certainly got a lot of humor. It's just filled to the brim with heart. I love that film. And then he walks into Sunshine, so we're going to talk about that tonight. He follows up with Sunshine. So I think you get up to a period now with Danny Boyle that all of a sudden he's getting a ton of recognition. So right after Sunshine, you get Slumdog Millionaire from 2008. He wins an Oscar for directing and that film also wins for Best Picture. He follows that up with 127 Hours from 2010, which also gets a ton of nominations. He goes on to do, I think, a live theater production of Frankenstein in 2011, which garnered, um, you know, some notoriety. It, it actually played in some movie theaters, you know, when they would do the sort of opera or theater thing at, you know, select, I don't know, location to AMC, whatever it is. Then he, he does Trance in 2013, Steve Jobs in 2015, with the, which again gets some notoriety from from award season. That's the good one, right? Weren't there two Steve Jobs movies? Jobs and Steve Jobs. Yes, Jobs. Yeah. Yep. 
This is the good one. Um, yeah. T2 train spotting, not T2, like not Terminator judgment two, day, not judgment day. <laughs> Does that in 2017. And then just more recently did yesterday in 2019, which, <laughs> which was kind of a, now Brad, you only made it 30 minutes into this film. I hated that. I, this is for someone who loves Beatles music, but that movie is just offensive. It is embarrassingly bad. It is so really? bad. Oh, it's God awful. So for, and, and Brett, let me start with you. If you look at Danny Boyle's filmography, have you seen all of his films or are there large pockets that you, you've just overlooked? I've probably, I think I've probably seen half of them. I love trance. I think trance is one of his most underrated films. And it's, you know, I like, I like, like James McAvoy, this kind of came out, I think, you know, I, I think once it was before this, so McAvoy had done something similar, but I think trance is awesome. Um, I have not seen. Are you millions. thinking of wanted and trance is? Are you thinking of the one? <laughs> no, no. Okay, good. Trance is trance is awesome. Yeah. Um, haven't seen millions. Uh, I ha- actually have seen yesterday. Um, my wife is a huge Lily James fan, so we. Uh, it was. I don't have the passionate opinion that Brad does about it. I, I thought. It, I, I definitely. I, I wished it was better than what it was, but um, yeah. So I'm. I'm probably batting like 500 with, with Danny Boyle films. So is he, is he a director for either of you that the minute that Danny Boyle's at, I don't know, attached to a project, you're excited for what he's going to do, or you're just going to run out and see it. No, yeah. not anymore. He was at one point in time. I would think after like 127 hours and probably trance, like, yes, I would have been right on board. And then after I saw yesterday, I'm like, cause I think for some of his misses, like, they're not good. Like he's got some bad movies. Oh yeah. That is. are, that are real bad. Yeah. And I, I think he, I think you said it historically, a lot of his films, you get into the back end of it and they get a little rough. I, I got third act problems. I feel like he really just has third act problems. He has, he has a fantastic setup in most cases. He can get good performances out of his <laughs> actors, but that third act, it, it, it he, he's got issues. Um, but that let's talk about this. Let's talk about Alex Garland. I mean, he wrote this sucker, right? So Alex Garland, when you look at the stuff that he's contributed, I totally forgot about this. So he did 28 days later in 2002 sunshine in 2007, never let me go in 2010. This showed up on his, um, IMDB credits as well. I don't know if you guys ever played this game called enslaved odyssey to the West. It came out in 2010. One of the best games ever. It was science fiction sort of retelling of the Monkey King. That is one of my favorite games of all time. Did not know he wrote that. It's so good. Uh, Dread in 2012, which, Brett, you were on. I mean, I guess anytime Alex Garland were doing one of his films, you're on. You're you're the guy. So when we do the Alex Garland guy. Yep. Yep. And and he does Ex Machina in 2015 and Annihilation in 2018. This guy. Ex Machina is so good. Yeah. So good. I mean... He is one hell of a writer, I think, in, especially in the science fiction genre. Yes, yes. Now, again, so if whatever he does next, like he's the opposite of Danny Boyle for me. Like whatever Alex Garland does next, I'm there. Oh, absolutely. Day one, minute one. Yes, 100%. Whatever video game he writes, TV show, I don't care what form it is. I am there. I, I will have the Alex Garland t-shirt on. I will be buying the ticket. 
I'm I'm, I'm actually selling those. I'm the president of this fan club, apparently. Oh. So, fan, <laughs> yeah, Alex Garland's fan club. That's right. So we'll we'll talk a <laughs> no, little. I bit, agree. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about the cinematog the cinematography and stuff, and and uh, some people involved behind that when we get into the thoughts on the film. But I kind of want to turn our attention now to to the faces in front of the camera. So this is where it gets really interesting. Let's start with Cillian Murphy. He plays the role of Robert Kappa. Now, for those of you who have seen the film, and I don't know if you're like me, a lot of times names don't stick. And especially in an ensemble piece, if you have a film that kind of throws you right in the middle of it, sometimes it's what they do, who they are, you know, what their title is. And especially in a lot of these sort of space ensemble films, or let's just say disaster films, it kind of comes down to the memorable moments. So Cillian Murphy, you know, forget his name for a second. He's the white guy with the blue eyes. That's how you'll know Cillian Murphy. What do you guys think about him? Is he one of your favorites? I'm, I'm amazed when you go back and look at his filmography, how many things he's been in. Yeah, I because of him, like I want to watch Peaky Blinders, but I just haven't committed yet. But I would watch it because of him. I think he's, I can't think of anything he's bad in. Like Inception, he's amazing. Um, oh, yeah, he's such a good actor. You know, Scarecrow, he's awesome as Scarecrow. So, yeah, I... I I don't know if I've seen anything that he's bad in. What about you, Brett? I, I, I am a fan. I, Peaky Blinders is great. You would love it. Uh, okay. He is, Cillian Murphy really is kind of a, and he's an interesting actor because he's, I wouldn't say like, I don't know. He's, he's got a weird way of just sort of commanding the screen, but he doesn't like, I wouldn't like, you know, Leo DiCaprio, the guy who is incredibly good looking. He's added, was in Titanic, obviously started young, whereas Cillian Murphy just kind of is this, he's almost like somebody who you you would think would be able to carry a film or carry a, a five-season show on, on Netflix, and yet he's just got this almost silent power that comes through in Sunshine, obviously, because it's such an intimate film at times. I, I agree with Brad. I really can't think of any time, and I'm like, ah, I wish... Cillian, I, I didn't feel like Cillian Murphy was in the right element. He's just able to to do so many things well that, that I'm a I'm a big fan. I I, I forgot, but that movie Red Eye, oh which God, has no so business good. of being that good, yes. is completely and totally enjoyable because of the performances in that movie. There there are two movies that I think so you you name a lot of the high profile ones, but there are two films that I when I hear his name. I think about these two films. Red Eye is the first one. Like you said, Brad, that movie is a lot of fun to watch. I think it's thrilling specifically because of him. And then the second one that I have a ton of fun with and absolutely love is Free Fire that came out in 2016. And that movie, if you haven't seen it, definitely go check it out. It It's on my list. It'll be one that I will pick at some point because it didn't do very well in the box office. What's it called? Free Fire? Free Fire. Fire. Go go and look at that cast. It is fantastic. But the whole premise of Free Fire is there's a arms exchange going down in a warehouse and it goes bad. And the whole film takes place in this warehouse with people trying to get out of the warehouse and and shoot each other. That's the whole premise of the film. And it has a a pretty fantastic cast. I think uh, I can't ever say his name, but he's from District 13, Char- Charcoal. Char- oh, Charcoal Copley. Yeah, that guy. And I think I think uh, Captain Marvel's in it too. Uh, Brie so, Larson is yeah. in it. Yes. So it's 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 such a fun film. It but it it is very dark humor. 
but he's he's one that as soon as the minute you, you see that he's going to be in a film, I'm kind of interested because he's so versatile. Uh, the other one, so kind of going on, we have Rose Byrne. So again, she plays Cassie, but you probably won't remember that. You will remember that she's the white girl that pushes buttons on the dashboard. That's she does push she a does. lot of buttons. She pushes a yes. ton of buttons. And, and you know, the reason why I'm calling out maybe the ethnicity here is because this, uh, the whole cast comes from all over the world. And mm. that's one of the cool things about this is the number of people that they're able to bring in um, to put in front of the camera. And it does feel like something that internationally you would have all these people come through you know, jump on a spaceship that has a big bomb, go to the sun. But at the end of the day, you're, you remember them probably based on their ethnicity and then what button they pushed or what they're doing. So, so far you have the white guy with the blue eyes and then um, the white girl who pushes a lot of buttons. I mean, that's all she does in the <laughs> film. And, and Rose Byrne, I mean, if, if you're playing not a bomb bingo and you're looking for a Star Wars reference, of course, she's in what, Brad? Well, she is in a, she is... Attack of the Clones. I That's know that. That's right. Yep. 2002 as Dorme. Dorme, yes. Yeah. And she's, she's you know, she comes from, uh, again, somebody that I think Danny Boyle has worked with in the past, you know, from at least uh, producer. So it was 28 weeks later. She was in that in 2007. She's done a lot of comedies. So she's, a lot of people might know her from Insidious, the horror film, because she did those two films. But she's also been Get Him to the Greek in 2010. Bridesmaid in 2011, Neighbors in 2014. Uh, again, great, I know, I know that, yeah, a film that I think doesn't get enough attention because I think it's really funny, but it did pretty good, was Spy in 2015 with uh, Melissa McCarthy, Jason Statham. And uh, another film that I really liked that she did recently was Juliet Naked in 2018. That's a really fun romantic comedy. I, I don't know if you guys are Rose Byrne fans. I, again, she's... I think everything that she does or brings to the table, she's another versatile actress. Can I tell you a funny Rose Byrne story? Absolutely. So there's a Wu-Tang uh, Clan song. It's called Triumph. And for the longest time, so Method Man has a verse and it says, it's my testament to those burned. And I always thought he said to Rose Byrne. <laughs> So I always thought he was shouting out Rose Byrne. That's interesting. Method Man is a Rose Byrne. Yeah, I was like, what? Maybe it's he is saying that. to Rose Byrne. And so, yeah. I think Playing my position in the game of life, standing firm. I was like, wow, he just he just <laughs> rhymed firm with Rose Byrne. I, like, that's awesome. But no, he was totally wrong. He's a sensitive so. guy. I can see it yeah. happening. Yeah. So. Moving on. Chris Evans as Mace. So, Never heard of him. Yeah, he's Captain America with a bad haircut in this film. Dude, that long hair. Wow. Wow. Can, can we talk? I, I don't know what you guys think about this. And I, I, I have this question for both of you. So when somebody, I don't know, attains a role, I think Harrison Ford's a great example with Han Solo, Indiana Jones. But there's a point when they go on to do other films. Do you get to that, I don't know, every time you see him, even in films that they did before the big one that made him a movie. So in Chris Evans, obviously Captain America, right? So he's he's one of the leads in, in the entire Marvel universe. And I honestly can't think of anybody else doing Captain America now except Chris Evans. He's so good in it. But now when you see Chris Evans in films, do you just see Captain America or do you see Chris Evans? I would have said yes, but then I saw him in Knives Out, and I was like, wait, well, maybe not. Maybe he can be more versatile than that, that I'm just not seeing him as Captain America doing other things. So, but yeah, I get your point. Like, it is hard. 
even going back, like you said, until I saw that long hair, I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. How do you take one of the most attractive people in the entire world <laughs> and make them look so ugly? Like, now you know, I know Chris Evans is mortal because, like, that hair, you're like, yeah, that guy's definitely mortal. Like, no. it was So, anyway, yes, I get what you're saying. What about you, Brad? I mean, is that all you see is is uh, Captain America? Or? I, I, I think this is a testament to Chris Evans in the sense that he he is able to be somebody like Captain America. But then when if I go back and watch Snowpiercer and if I watch Sunshine, he he is. I'll go ahead and say this: he is my favorite character in Sunshine. I think he's great. I mean, I think he's just a really commanding presence on screen, and I, I think he's. I think he's every scene that he's in in sunshine. Well, I, I just it's because he's Captain America. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's just face oh, it. I see what you did there. Yeah, see, I totally agree with you, but it's because he's Captain America. So, move, <laughs> moving on, we get Cliff Curtis as uh, Surly. Was that his name, right? So he's yeah. Earl, yeah, yeah. He's the doctor person. I think he's the shrink. He's the he's, he's the, the guy jerking off to the sun. Yes, he's <laughs> the sunburn. And and what's funny, I look at his filmography. So I, I like to pick on people like, well, this guy's made a lot of great career choices. And when you look at his filmography, he was in seven, no, six days, seven nights with uh, Harrison Ford in 1998, yep. Virus in 1999 with Jamie Lee Curtis, which was horrible. Live Free or Die Hard in 2007, 10,000 BC in 2008. He was in Push with Chris Evans in 2009. And, the Force, but not The Force. Yeah, and uh, he he was in this fantastic film, which if you want to hear about this, go listen to Friends with Cinefits, which we host on the Not A Bomb website. Uh, our good friend Alex McAllister does that podcast, but he's talked about this film, and it is none other than 2010's The Last Airbender, and he did the Meg oh. in 2018, but most recently he was in Doctor Sleep in 2019. This guy's been in a lot of films, but I thought it was funny to go through his filmography and go, "Wow, look at me! Bad career choices you did up until <laughs> probably Doctor Sleep." I don't know. Uh, then you get Michelle Yeoh as Corazon, and you'll you'll remember her from the film as Michelle Yeoh. So it's it's just Michelle Yeoh. She's the Mark Watney of the of the crew. She's so, the botanist, right? Yes, yes, she is the botanist, but she's just Michelle Yeoh. I that's one person. Anytime I see Michelle Crazy Rich Asians, it's like, oh, there's Michelle Yeoh, and I'm always, I don't know, thrown off when she doesn't kick somebody in the face. So I'm gonna let you know right now. Sunshine gets, you know, loses some cool points because Michelle Yeoh didn't kick anybody in the face. So there, there are no face kicks. Yeah, right out of the gate, it's not winning any points with me. <laughs> but this is where it gets interesting. So you get Hiroki Sanada. So he plays Kanada, uh, which is the captain. So you know him as the captain. Now, his filmography is super interesting. Amazing. Because he, Love this guy. he starred in a film with Michelle Yeoh where they were both kicking people in the face. And it was none other than 1986. Now, if you guys haven't seen this film, I'm just going to end the podcast right now. But it's none other than 1986 in the line of duty with Michael Wong, Michelle Yeoh, and Hiroki. And that, that film is flat out one of Michelle Yeoh's best films, one of the best Hong Kong films from the 80s. Absolutely fantastic. But he, he did a lot of action films. Another memorable one from the 80s was Ninja in the Dragon's Den, 1982. And, and okay, what, what just, I don't know, culturally important horror movie did he star in? Come on. This one's, come on. Brad, uh, Brad, uh. Brad. Come on, Brad. You should know this. 
You're putting me on the spot. Troy, stop it. It's Ringu. He was in the original Ringu. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. He was in Ringu and Spyro. I've seen that once. So, yeah. So, we're going to, we're going to sidetrack from it. Do you know the, do you know the history of those two films, Ringu and Spyro? So, when, when Ringo, Ringo, when Ringo, Ringo. (laughs) yeah, when Ringu came out, they both came out in 1998, Ringu and Spyro. The idea was Spyro is actually the official sequel of Ringu. And the idea was when they released them both, you would go into one theater and see Ringu. And then then you would go to the next theater and see, the sequel spiral but spiral didn't really do that well and actually a lot of people didn't like spiral but they loved ringu so they ended up in making 19, another sequel yeah the a year later 1909 made the ring two and he's in that as well okay. but yeah he he is in the original iconic ringu films um and again if if you haven't seen those i mean the american i think we've talked about this before in the podcast the American version is fantastic. The Japanese ones are are just equally as good. Can but we, can we mention what he's coming in in twenty twenty one? No, 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 no. Because we're not done yet okay. with our not a bomb bingo. Because obviously we talked Star Wars. So if if you're keeping track, we've also got a Tom Cruise slot. So what Tom Cruise movie did he star in? The Last Samurai. Last I believe that's Samurai. his first Hollywood film, right? Yeah, his I first his so. major. Yep. Yep. Two thousand three. But this guy, he's also been in The Promise um, in 2005, directed by Cage Chen. Now, again, you're going to fill out another spot on Not a Bomb Bingo because we've talked Star Wars now. We've talked Tom Cruise. So who does that leave, Brad? And Jackie Chan. Jackie Chan. So, of course, he's in Rush Hour 3. And then he actually was in a film that we just recently talked about, 2008 Speed Racer. He was in The Wolverine in 2013, 47 mm-hmm. Ronin in 2013, in another science fiction film, I don't know what you guys think about this one, Life in 2017. I thought it was pretty oh, good. Oh, yeah. Is that the one with Ryan Reynolds? Yes. And, mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Which I think a, a yeah. lot of people thought was sort of going to be the prequel to Venom at the time in terms yep. of the ending and stuff like that. But, okay, so what do you want to talk about in 2021, Brad? He plays Scorpion in Mortal Kombat. Oh, yeah. Which we will get to later. Yes. But, uh, man, that's that's just a fantastic filmography. Of all the people... He says, get over here in the trailer. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah, so <laughs> we'll get there, Brad. Calm down. Yeah. So, rounding out the rest of the people in front of the camera, we got Benedict Wong as Trey. Um, so, you'll know him as the Chinese guy that does math. I think he's the only person that does math. Yeah, and, that, that one was a little on the nose. Yeah. I keep thinking of the part in the big short where Ryan uh, Gosling is pitching the uh, shorting the the housing market and he brings in his quantitative. Yeah. And he's like, look at him. So yeah, that's always what I think about. Yeah. So they go there and then you you would know him from the Dr. Strange movie as Wong, Dr. Strange assistant. You've got Troy Garrity. This one's interesting. He plays Harvey. I didn't know he was in this movie until he really turns into the crazy white guy. So he would show up in scenes, and I'm like, who's that guy in the background? He would say yeah, something, he would go away, then he would show up again. I'm like, oh, th- where did he come from? And if you go back and watch the film, he's there the whole time, but he's, he's just... like white toast. Yeah, and what's funny, <laughs> you go look at his filmography, and he's been in a ton of movies that I've seen, and I don't remember this guy. <laughs> I don't recognize him at all. I mean, talk about being the most non-memorable actor in film history... And he has a great first name, Troy Garrity, but this dude just 
uh, I don't know, excels at being in the background and not noticeable. And he's just horrible. Let's okay. So, <laughs> and, and then lastly, we get to Mark Strong and he's pinbacker. So you'll know him as Leatherface wannabe. That's where we get to the third act. Now, Mark Strong's been in, in actually um, a couple of big high-profile movies, Zero Dark Thirty in 2012, Kingsman Secret Service in 2014, plus its sequel, Shazam in 2019, plays the villain there, and then 1917, he was also in that film in 2019. Um, was was there anybody in the cast that we went through, I mean, outside of Michelle Yeoh, Chris Evans, um, and then um, uh, Hiroki? I mean, are we talked uh, probably the most about Cillian Murphy, but any, any of these people that maybe in 2007 you were just super excited to see for me it was, it was, it was Michelle Yeoh right out of the gate, but was there anybody else for you guys? No, no, Mm -mm. that's a problem. Yeah, that, that is kind of a big problem. So let's talk about development a little bit before we kind of get into our opinion of the film. Danny Boyle and Alex Garland worked on the script for over a year. So they were writing and rewriting this thing. They then spent a second year in pre-production, filmed for three months. So that was two years before they got into filming. Filming took place for three months. Then they spent another year editing and working on the visual effects. Okay. The other thing I want to talk about before we get into thoughts in the film. So I, I, I want some help from you guys. The, the reason why we started with our question about Hollywood and science is... Hollywood traditionally just doesn't do science very well. And I mean, we, we talked about some fun, great examples. What do you think about the science in this film? Boy, I mean, again, jump using all these, uh, you know, the nuclear stockpile of the whole entire earth to jumpstart the sun doesn't seem like it would work. And I know for a fact that in, this movie takes place in 2057. Yes, 2057. Scientifically, I think the sun will burn out, but I think it's like in 3 billion years. So it's, it's about 4 to 5 billion years yeah. left we got. Yeah, so we've got quite some time. So I don't know what <laughs> happened to the sun to make it prematurely burn out, but uh So what, what about it you, Brett? Never I mean, did, to any of us before, but did, you know. Did you whatever. buy it just going in because here here's the other thing I want to point out. Yes, it I mean, the nuclear stockpile, all the bombs, whatever they put on spaceship, go to the sun. But what's happening here is the sun is burning out. And so, therefore, the Earth is turning into, like, a big icebox, right? Yeah, like a frozen yes. wasteland. Yes. Okay. So, you, what did you think about the science here, Brett? Did, did, did it enter your mind, like, right out of the gate when they were explaining it? Did, were you like, okay, I'm, I'm along for the ride? Or were you like, wait a second? Yeah, I, I kind of gave it a pass. Um, the whole notion of creating a star out of a dying star, you know, in hindsight, probably. But I, I was just sort of in. I thought every, how, how the film opens, I think, is just sort of, I don't know, almost haunting or chilling enough that I was I was in. And so for me, the, the whole notion of how accurate the science was. And then it was really fascinating going back and reading after I watched it. You know, that the fact that Danny Boyle consulted with all of these different scientists and Cillian Murphy actually went and studied the, these different nuclear physicists or like how they acted, um, their body language, their mechanics. Um, and scientists have said that, you know, obviously it's it's hit and miss, but they did say that the size of the sun, that one stellar bomb that they have 
it would actually require thousands and thousands of these stellar bombs successfully reignite the sun if that were something that in four billion years they should probably start thinking about yeah so here's my problem um (laughs) so it's the 2057 that really starts kind of itching at your brain right so you got four or five billion years before the sun sort of runs out of fuel but this film takes place in 2057 so that doesn't exactly like make sense and I think to your guys' point, if you can get into the beginning of the film, okay, cool. You get to the end of the film and you get these scenes of what sort of has happened to the world where it's very icy, everybody's, you know, all bundled up, et cetera. And that's really where it kind of irritates me because for the longest time, and I've seen this film a couple of times, it was always the premise where they're saying the sun is dying and you get this idea, and I don't know you guys, the, the sun's running out of fuel, so they think that, okay, it's running out of energy, right? So if sun is running out of energy, it should only get hotter as opposed to colder. Because what's supposed to happen in that four or five billion years is it would actually burn us all up. That That's how science works with the sun. And that's always bothered me about this film. So I'm, I'm researching. I'm like, okay, to your point, Brett. Isn't they, that like the nuclear fission part of yes. it? Yes. So yes, okay. as it runs out, it gets hotter, and it and what should happen in five billion years is it just burns all of us, right? That that's when that's what should well because happen. all the energy within the sun that that has to go somewhere exactly. Yes. So right out of the hey, gate, I'm thinking I listened in high school and I remembered some yeah. stuff. And and me too. As much as I don't like science, I'm like that's always bothered me about this film. You you get this whole oh sun's losing fuel or whatever, and it's supposed to get cold. It's like, what? That's not how the sun works. If you paid attention. Uh, but to your point, Brett, apparently they went and talked to a ton of like smart people. So I can't imagine that they run into all these smart That's, people. Yeah. So here's what I found. The, the plot does not re- And this is, this floored me because I didn't pick up any of this in the film, but here you go. Right. The plot does not revolve around the sun dying in the normal sense. This is not due for around 5 billion years based on our understanding of nuclear fission. There you go, Brad. It has instead been infected with a cue ball, a supersymmetric nucleus left over from the Big Bang that is disrupting the normal matter. This is a theoretical particle that scientists at CERN are currently trying to confirm and was one of the many contributions of the science advisor. The film's bomb is meant to blast the cue ball to its constituent parts, which will then naturally decay, allowing the sun to return to normal. So that's that's the science of it. Do they talk about that in the film, though? I don't think so. I think they just say the sun's dying. The sun is dying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess that didn't have the same ring to it. Cillian Murphy starting the movie with that description. Yeah, but that's actually more feasible and, and makes sense. It does. But and blowing something up is really cool, you know? It, it I know is. it doesn't sound as cool as, hey, we're going to restart the sun because it's dying. <laughs> but, hey, what we do here is blow shit up. So let's go blow stuff up. Oh, I get it. And here's the thing. I, I think if if they had gone even farther to maybe Armageddon territory, maybe people wouldn't have thought this was so, I don't know, theoretically heavy. But like you said, they just talk about the sun dying. So I've always thought, well, okay, the sun's not supposed to die in like 5 billion years. And even if it's dying, it it shouldn't be making the earth colder. It would make it hotter. So right out of the gate, the science wasn't working for me. And the fact that you have to go and find this research 
of what they were writing. So I'm sure this was like, uh, I don't know, Alex Garland's like sticky note and it's like, oh yeah, we're, we're jumpstarting the cue ball or whatever it is within the sun that, that never made it through and has always bothered me about the film, but I thought I'd share what I did learn about it. And, and that explanation actually makes sense, but that's nowhere found yeah. in the film. Yeah. Do so, you all know the story of Icarus in Greek mythology? Yeah. You, you want to, you want to go ahead and explain that so because that's, that's the name of the ships in the film. Yes. So it, it is actually kind of funny if you know, essentially, so the, the, the ships one and two are named Icarus one and Icarus two. Um, Icarus's father built him wings out of feathers and wax. And basically the, the phrase don't fly too close to the sun comes from this story. And out of hubris, you know, Icarus flies too close to the sun. Sun melts the wax between his feathers and he drowns. So, you know, I think it's kind of ironic, not ironic. It's kind of foreshadowing that they named the ships Icarus. And if you know the story of Icarus, you know exactly what's probably gonna ain't going to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you know what's coming. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's not like this isn't the ships aren't called spirit or, you know, hope yeah. or anything like that. It's Icarus. So if you were an astronaut and they were like, hey, you're going to go to the sun with exactly. bomb and we're calling the ship Icarus, I would have yeah. been a little nervous to get on that. Yeah. Hey, you're going to go to the sun, but we're going to base it on this story about not flying too close to the sun. Not a good omen, man. Good luck. Yeah. All right. So let's talk. Let's get into this thing. I've been ever since I've seen this, I've been kind of dying to talk about it. And Brett, you're our guest. We are so happy to have you on. We, we know you were excited about talking this film because months ago when you saw this on our list, you, you said, I want that one. Called so, dibs. Yeah, you called dibs. I think you're the first person we've worked with that calls dibs on something. Dibs. But real quick, <laughs> I, what, what's your initial thought on this thing? I mean, you kind of showed your hand early on because I know you love this film. But, you know, just, just give me some initial reactions to, to watching Sunshine this time around. Yeah, no, I think it's a film that definitely is, for me at least, highlighted by like, four or five really, really awesome scenes. And I think that to me overshadows maybe the scientific inaccuracies that, or at least why I personally was able to overlook them and still are able to overlook them. You know, I think, you know, getting ahead of our, our discussion here, I think that the scene with Canada and um, Cillian Murphy on the top of the ship, iconic. It's to me, I think. Well, the, the ship in itself is iconic you know that yeah. front sort of you know reflector Shield, thing yeah, yeah. And, and i think um as this sort of spirals out of control and they run across the first icarus and just walking into that first icarus and i think it's gonna throw it throws some people off that they think there's something wrong with their tv screen when they start flashing the images of the, the people who are on that first icarus I just think it's it's really cool. And and as they start digging deeper and the sense of dread just continues to grow. I think it's just all handled so well by Danny Boyle. And I think that the actors are, are able to, and Cillian Murphy's a huge part of it. Fun fact that I didn't know until after, after I saw it. So Pinbacker, Mark Strong's character, was named after a character from John Carpenter's directorial debut called Dark Star. And you if you search Dark Star, I was able to find it and try to try to start watching it today. Oh man. Have you guys ever seen it? Oh yeah. It's fantastic. It, it was a student film that he did that he ended up sort of blowing out into a feature film. And uh it is a lot of fun to watch, but 
it's ending. It's, it's out it's, it's there. It's very trippy, man. It's out there. Yeah. So I didn't know that, but um, yeah, to me, uh, I, I, and then of course, Chris Evans his scene towards the end is awesome. Again, to me, it's those four or five scenes throughout the film that, that really are, are powerful. And the music, the, the music, John Murphy and underworld, I think was the band that collaborated with John Murphy. Amazing. They just do such a good job with the music and pairing it up with the right scene. Just a big fan. I mean, what it, I loved. I can't wait to hear your guys' thoughts. Okay, well let's <laughs> let's kick it over to Brad because this is Brad's pick. So obviously, Brett has bought the Sunshine T-shirt. He's got all the autographs from everybody. He's collecting the DVD, the Blu-ray, <laughs> the 4K, everything else. So Brad, you're. You, is this your second watch, third watch? How many times have you seen this? Movie? Oh, I don't know how many times I've seen this movie. It's countless. Okay, countless um, times. So you you had yeah. to watch it again for the show. Ini- yeah. Initial thoughts. It's always so striking to see this movie. Like you have the orange with the black, like that contrast. It just stands out. It's beautiful looking. Even like, you know, just seeing the sun, like obviously we're never going to get, like, you know, that close to the sun ever, but seeing just how they do it and how big and powerful and just, I don't want to say majestic, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just this awe inspiring thing. And they, I think they capture that in the movie really well. Um, of course you have the one guy who like, like I was saying before is fetishizing the sun. Yeah. And it's kind of weird. Um, we didn't touch on it, Troy, but you know, Cliff Curtis's character was supposed to be a bigger part of this movie and he had some family issues that he left. That can explain some of the things that go on later on in the movie, why kind of he just pieces out. But anyway, um, you know, I, I always like a science fiction movie going for it. Now, again, the there's science fiction. So, you know, you take the science and you also take the fiction as well. Um, so I, I'm okay with, you know, all of a sudden our sun is burning out and all this stuff. Like, look, we're, we're in a movie. Let's just go for a ride and see where it takes us. I think all the performances are pretty good. Less uh, our boy, Troy. Um, he is <laughs> just a wet blanket of a character. Um, when he whines about being the captain, like <laughs> you just want to punch this guy in the face and be like, Dude, I come do. On. I wanted. I <laughs> literally wanted. To, I wanted to change my name after watching his performance. Yeah, go, it's it's, dude, it's pretty. You're, give, you're giving the Troys in the world a bad name, man. Stop that. Um, you know, every everybody watching the movie was hoping that he didn't make that shoot, and so when he bounces off, there was probably a collective roar of applause. Like when I came on the show in the theater when that happened, probably. Yeah. So you know, I, I think you know. When you're when you're in these space movies and you have a limited cast and they're all interacting with each other all the time, like you want to be pulling for these people, but you also want like a character to realize how big uh, this mission is. And I like that Chris Evans's mace always is framing every decision around. There's six billion people back on the planet. Yes, it sucks that this guy has to die. But there's six billion people back home. If we don't do this, they're all gonna die. Like we can't, you know, it's immeasurable that one life can equal six billion. So let's, you know, stay within our our role. Um, initially on this one, I was like, man, I don't like me and Chris Evans. But by the end of it, you're like, no, this guy is the only one thinking straight because he is laser focused on 
making sure that payload gets to the sun. So um, we'll talk about things later on, but yeah, that's my initial reaction. Okay. So you have eight astronauts strapped to a bomb headed for the sun. And that concept alone, when I heard about it, really got me excited because it felt like a space version of Wages of Fear or Sorcerer, if you've seen Freaking's yeah, remake of it. I think anytime you can pitch a movie on a napkin to somebody or like in an elevator, like going from floor one to two, and you can say, hey, eight astronauts strapped to a bomb, restarting the sun. Boom. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic concept. Mm-hmm. And plus, I feel like every director of, I don't know, prominence is always chasing after Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. I feel like you got to get it out of your system at some point, right? So yeah. you got Danny Boyle, who really takes this wages of fear type concept, which sounds super interesting, and then says, okay, I'm going to throw some nods into 2001. Love that concept. And what you end up getting is two-thirds disaster film, uh, one-third slasher film, and uh, one-third arty space film. So I know for all you math people out there, like, yeah, that <laughs> – that doesn't add up, That's right? Four thirds. Yeah, math doesn't add up. So neither does this film. It it's it doesn't add up. It's got all these identities, and it's chasing all these different themes. And you can literally watch this film and turn around and block it into okay. Now they're going after the disaster film. Oh, now here's the space arty portion. Here's the 2001 throwback, and all of a sudden here is the slasher film component. None so of you it, say tonally it shifts too much? I, I don't think from a script perspective or tone it, it works at all. And I think the primary reason why it doesn't work is there's absolutely zero character development. Now, I, I say that with a, <laughs> I don't know, an asterisk next to it. There are scenes in here that I think are very interesting. So there is a scene when three characters are having a discussion about murdering another character because of the predicament. And I think that's really interesting. However, it's so far late in the film. And there's, there's a point in the film where it's like, I don't care about any of these folks. Like, I don't care. I know the story behind the scenes is Boyle had them all living together for I don't know how many weeks and getting... And, and the idea is you're, you're now... When eight people start living in a house. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the real world. You're jumping into this story where they're towards the tail end of this mission. So they've been around each other. So there's not going to be a ton of backstory that they're going to give you. That may have happened towards the beginning, I think on the voyage when they're all getting to know each other or something of that nature. But cause there's, I mean, it's a seven, seven year voyage. Is that what they said? And they're, I, don't, I forget. Yeah. I mean, I guess they're at the tail end of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. And, and the reason why, when we talk about the people in front of the camera, I'm like, well, that's the white girl that pushed the buttons. That's the Chinese guy that did the math. That's the Japanese captain. That's the shrink. I, everybody is a stereotype. Now you There's can, the mechanic. Yeah. Chris Evans is the angry white guy space astronaut who's talking common sense, right? Cillian Murphy is your, your hero and ends up being the focal point of a lot of decisions. But at no point in this film did I care about any of them. And you can, you can have a speech all day long about, oh, six billion people on this planet are going to die unless we get the payload there. A- at the end of the day, it's just another disaster film speech. Th- this movie is 
like my junior high prom date. Super pretty, nothing in there, man. Nothing in there whatsoever. Wow. So, I, I mean, the sun special effects, awesome to look at. I'm more surprised that you went to your junior prom, to be honest with you. <laughs> I, I, I just, I, I mean, I don't know what to say. And, and for me, and I, I would love you guys to, to defend this aspect of it, it all, it all starts with the crew. The, the crew, absolutely zero character development. The reason why Michelle Yeoh is Michelle Yeoh in this film is she acts, there's nothing to her. There's, there's nothing to Cillian Murphy. There's nothing to Chris Evans except he gets angry every once in a while. Well, they try to do stuff with Cillian Murphy with his Has a dream relationship. about, like, yeah. I'm going to fly on the sun. And what? Nothing happens to it, right? So... Um, I mean, it kind of foreshadows the end of the movie a little bit. Yeah, but during half of the halfway of the film, you talk about this iconic: the captain and and Cillian Murphy are on the the front part of the fixing station. The platforms, They're yeah. fixing the platform, and you know the the Chinese guy's crying because he did math wrong, and everybody's all panicky. At, at and his, his tiger mother is very upset. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm like, okay, I, I understand what's at risk here. And, and the one girl's just pushing buttons. Like she's pushing buttons harder now because of all the stuff that's going on. And they're out taking we should a walk. Call, we should call her clickety clack from now on. That's <laughs> yeah, all she does. Clickety clack is just pushing buttons. Everybody else is watching the monitoring. Chris Evans is like grimacing and like, oh, I told you guys. But nothing at, at that point, the, the dude dies. And Cillian Murphy kind of comes off of it. And I'm like, oh, look pretty, but I don't care. Like, I, I could care less about any of them. It just, and, you know, it doesn't help that right at the start of the film, the entire crew's grumpy, and that's all you get. They're, they're grumpy from the beginning. They're grumpy through the whole thing. There's no emotional content to any of them. It, it's a very sterile film. Yeah, well, so to, to your, you would take out what, you would take out the, the slasher element and just stick to, okay, maybe let's take that instead of going with the whole sun God weird kind of slasher and just go work on the character development. And just so that the whole thing would be this, the eight astronauts on that ship. And the focus would be just on the character specifically dropping the payload is that I, how you would fix it or not what necessarily you, I'd go back is, to go back to a movie like Ridley Scott's alien, the first alien, you get character development between the pinnacle of, you know, space sci-fi. Absolutely. Films. Okay, it's the, again, 2001 is an, another great example. Yeah. You've got these films where the character development either comes through action. It comes through small pieces of dialogue. It seems that they do. It's hints that they give you. And, you know, regardless of what you say about this film, I find that the characters just act irrational. Now they may not be acting irrational for the sake of what would happen there, but without, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where they're coming from. So their, their behavior doesn't add up. Now you talk about the doctor who is, I mean, was if you're on the crew and your doctor is sitting in the observation deck day after day, just fascinated with the sun. And then his face is kind of burning off. I do like how they, he gets more and more burnt as the film goes. Oh, it's awful. Like, yeah, he's like peeling his skin off. It's like, really hard to look at. Yeah, and, and you're going to sit there as angry Chris Evans and go, yeah, I'm going to take some psychological advice from you. That that makes no sense to me. And then the fact that he goes full martyr in the film, yep, I understand there's some stuff that happened in the background, but it just feels irrational. And then you you get the, huh, sorry, the, the, the Troy guy, 
who he's, he's I mean, I keep forgetting every time he popped up on the screen, I'm like, who's that guy? Oh yeah. He, he was the other dude and he's just always standing there. And then all of a sudden he starts acting irrational and is like, Oh, I got to save my own, butt. I don't care about you. I'll promise I'll send people back for you kind of thing. That comes out of nowhere, but I think it comes out of nowhere because he's so vanilla through the first part of the film and you just forget he's there. And then Chris Evans, he, I mean, he, he's just the angry mechanic, right? He just gets mad. And yes, you can say it's a great performance and he's the most irrational, he's the most rational one. How can he be the most rational common sense guy when he's just beating Cillian Murphy up in the beginning and just his emotions get the best of him? How can your one character that is really, well, let's let's weigh this decision against the six million people also in the same film turn around and just act all woohoo, you know, I'm I'm angry and I'm gonna lash out at people. Again, it's it's irrational, and the characters just go down to stereotypes that only do things to facilitate the next plot point. Well, to be fair, they have been on a spaceship together for, you know, how many years? You know, if I'm in a room with people and it's more than a few hours, it's like, all right, I've had enough of you people. So just imagine on a spaceship and you're literally isolated from everyone else um, for millions of miles. I, mean, I can I'm just trying why, to play devil's advocate. Do, I, I, yeah, why do I have to imagine that? I'm I'm coming to a movie. Show that to me. I, like, I know. Describe I know. it to me. Give, give me something that palatable tension and that rationale for why you're acting that way. I, like I said, I, I think this. I don't need some guy well, explaining what's going on in his head. But there's again, I would go back to Alien to that. There there are certain things that those characters do that establish their personality and their motivation, and it's not a big long well, you get a voiceover of their thoughts in their head or something of that nature. It's just naturally coming through the script and everything else, and it plays so well. And so that either is that the people that they put in front of the camera aren't good enough, and I don't believe that because you got Michelle Yeoh, or <laughs> the the script just isn't that good. And I would say the script really isn't that good. Well, I, 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 I will jump on your point and think, I think, and say, I'll jump on your point and say, I think this film it's opens. Terrible. They're too close. They're too close to their actual conclusion. Yes. They're too close to the sun. There's no sort of traveling to where you can develop these people. They're 99.9% of the way to the sun when this movie opens. It's an, it's an action film that doesn't want to be an action film. I mean, it's a science fiction thriller. It's, an, it's a disaster action film that is trying to convince you that it's something other than a science disaster action film. Brett, defend your movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like, I, it, look, I agree. It's not perfect. And I agree with Brad. You know, those are, those are all valid points that, that Troy makes. I do think that it, it, it's, yeah, it, it basically starts. I think that Danny Boyle kind of wants the audience to to just sort of infer that okay this sense of claustrophobia they've been on here for three years living together they're exhausted um chris evans has a terrible haircut so that tells you, you know, what you need to know about don't trust mental him. state yeah exactly but yeah i i guess i just i, I don't have sort of a, an argument that i'm going to sway anything any of your points because I just think I'm able to overlook those things because I kind of like the, I, not not the emptiness, 
but I kind of like just being able to watch this film and it does, it, it flies from one plot point to the next. And there isn't, the character development is, is certainly not a strong suit in this film, but I kind of like how it just, it, it kind of breezes through. Now, I, I will say that the first time I watched it, and then when I went, went back again and watched it this week, the, the pinbacker thing is to me is, I, I don't know what I would change about that, but. Oh, we'll, we'll get there. Save, save the third act. Save discussion. the third act. Yeah. Cause oh, okay. we, we really need to dissect that, but, and I, I get this, I understand. So don't get me wrong. I, I don't, I wouldn't chastise anybody for loving this film. To me, though, it is on the same level of Armageddon. I mean, we've talked about it. Oh, I is. think that's unfair. That's no, a stretch. Armageddon a stretch. is just so dumb. This is at least a little smart. No. <laughs> Armageddon is also two and a half hours of some this is a This is a short. So, And that's my point to this is it it is no different in Armageddon in that it deals with stereotypes. It. It just has bad science. Uh, well, if you go back and read about it, you're like, oh, that kind of makes sense. But again, I think it has a lot more DNA to Armageddon than it does to like a 2001 or a silent running or any of the other films it's trying to call back to and say, hey, look at us. We're, we're like part of the, the, the good lot of science fiction films, the artsy, heady ones, the Solaris of the group. I, I think its character development is very similar to Armageddon, except it, Armageddon goes for more humor than what this thing does, but they're still very shallow. And at the end of the day, it's all about the mission. Like you got to go complete the mission. And it's just one big disaster film with a slasher element thrown into the back and a lot of artsy film elements. The thing that it does have going for it is one special effect, which is the sun. Um, but I'll, I'll throw some more criticism. You guys can, can chew on this too. You guys talk about the spaceship and it being sort of iconic. I, I think it's okay. I would, I would take the spaceship and Event Horizon as something uh, more interesting because of its... What? It's a different film. <laughs> it's going for Garth, gothic horror architecture. But when I look at this Icarus 2 or Icarus 1, outside of the big disc thing, there's nothing else that makes it awe-inspiring the way that you would get something out of like 2001 in terms of their spaceship design. And then the thing that kills it for me is the interiors of this spaceship look like a film set. There, there's just nothing original about it. It doesn't look lived in. It, again, it looks like a film set they put together and they're filming space film on. And, and again, the, you get them riding scooters down the a hallway. You didn't like the payload? I thought the payload looked awesome. The payload was CGI squares. So that, that's all it is. Um <laughs> And and the other thing that Troy kind of woke a, up on the wrong side yeah. of the bed today. No, I love the, it. And, and somebody's been staring at the sun too long. Yeah. No, no. The, the other thing is the, uh, the the space noise. Um, and I don't know if this comes from when we watched Serenity. I, I kind of like the idea that there was no noise with the spaceships, etc. So you go from Serenity, which tries to kind of go this, hey, there's no sound in space, to the most noisy spaceship we've talked about in 37 episodes where every time an antenna moves by it sounds like a mountain's going through whoosh, it's whoosh. and i mean everything around the ship has some space noise going on which again i would attribute that i was gravitating to something like serenity which they they get that science a little bit more well, I accurate think on the inside of a spaceship there would be noise 
I, I don't know. I haven't been yeah, on a spaceship. Yeah, because there's but, still friction. But the problem is the camera is showing you outside of the spaceship and the antenna goes by and you get the whoosh. Yeah. Um, okay. And so you get all these sounds. And like I said, it's the noisiest spaceship on the outside, not the inside. The two things from a special effects that still wow me is everything they do with the sun is just absolutely amazing. And I do like the sequence when our buddy Troy gets sort of jettisoned out of the airlock and then his arm breaks off into a thousand little cold pieces. <laughs> Those sequences are great. I, I kind of appreciate the um, wall of fire that kind of happens at the end. Anytime there's fire, I think they do a really good job with it. Although that last sequence makes no freaking sense. It's more arty crap. Um, it, it's kind of like Danny Boyle just <laughs> smelling his farts. Um, it's the, the star baby after. Yeah, it's, <laughs> and even the star baby makes more sense than that whole wall of fire. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, this, the special effects, it's got a couple things going for it, but the rest of it, just like it's cast, is pretty boring. Um, and the cinematography, Brett, you, you talked about these, these quick edits when they get to Icarus 1. Mm-hmm. And then I'll save this. There, there's a horrible, horrible, just horrible editing cinematography choice in the third act, which I, I will spend five or ten minutes just complaining how terrible it is. <laughs> I can't wait. But Alan Kultler, Kultler, I don't know, K-U-C-H-L-E-R, you know, it doesn't matter. This guy, there's, again, for something that is trying to call back to 2001 Space Odyssey, Solaris or something of of that nature, there's nothing cinematically wow about this film outside of the sun sequences. Without the sun sequences, there's no wow factor here. I don't know. I think it's pretty cool when the sun comes over that dome and it's just like, you know, you can see the shifting colors and stuff like that. I, I, I like those scenes. I like the, the, uh, the suit design, the gold suit, the spaceship, the, uh, astronaut space suit, Which, like the gold thing. I think yep. they designed off of uh, Kenny from South park is what I heard. The helmet portion. Oh, <laughs> so that should tell you something. Holy crap. Yeah. I'm beginning to think this was just an ambush. It wasn't wow. an ambush. I, I, here's, here's the thing. The first time I saw hey, it, Brad, theater, come on this show. Talk about this movie. You really love I, Troy's, Usually it's we me. Even I, gave, I, they I even like gave it. me the applause. Yeah. No, Hey, look, I, I'm just, I'm just like, when I first saw this film back into, saw it in the theaters, I really liked it. I, I did. And then when the Blu-ray came out and I watched it, I'm like, you know, I always had that problem with the whole sun thing and cold, but you know, like you said, Brett, at some point you just look beyond that and you go, I'm here for the ride. But this is one of those films that I've seen, I don't know how many times. And it, this was the week that when I sat down and watched it, it finally crossed that threshold where it was like, okay, now it's not enjoyable. So I don't, I don't know if you guys have that, those type of films where you get to the fifth or sixth watch. And I think I've seen it that many times that all of a sudden you get to a point where you go, the things that are wrong with this, are now outweighing the things that I used to enjoy about it because they stick out like a sore thumb. So I I used to really like it because I always thought it was an artsy action film and it worked, except for the third act. And now that I watch it, I, I find that, okay, the artsy stuff really isn't that great. The action sequences, well, there's not much weight to them because you don't really give a shit about the characters and then all of this other stuff. So I felt like this was the week that that needle just 
tipped over and it was, Oh, I can't enjoy this anymore because I've seen it so many times and, and all that stuff that's out there is just, it's getting to me now. I don't know. I just find this movie pretty breezy and easy to watch. I mean, it, it isn't, you're not doing a whole lot of heavy lifting when you're watching this movie. It's pretty breezy. I feel like, like, you know, compared to something like interstellar where it's like this big mammoth sort of science fiction film that to me is harder to watch than this movie. Interstellar is much better film, but it's, you got to do some heavy lifting with that thing. This one totally forward on it's totally. And I agree with Brad in the sense that are you, what you're saying, Troy, is that it try, it's a breezy, easy watch like this, but it tries to be more. Yes. And, and it's, okay. and it's that trying, like I said, I, I can, I can watch the dumbest action film 20, 30 times in a row and I get it, but as it's, long as it knows what it is. Yeah. It knows what it is. And it sort of embraces that DNA of what it's going for. And this one, I, I, I really have problems sometimes with sort of movies that are wrestling with its own DNA and again, I, I think this only happens on multiple viewings. I don't know about you guys, but there's a point where a, you just watch a film and you've seen it so many times and you go, okay, I, I really don't want to watch this anymore because I'm not getting that enjoyment. Like the first couple of times, hey, I, I really liked it. I'd probably put it in the B category. Now it's it's more of a C minus for me because I'm looking at it and just saying I, it's not as breezy anymore because there's a point in the film like halfway where I go, dude, I just really don't care about these. And I'm just waiting for the next action sequence. Well, I mean, all films have flaws. Absolutely. And I think after you've seen a movie so many times, those flaws become way more apparent. They do. But if you can, if you can latch on to the things that it does right and you really get enjoyment out of it. And the very first thing for me, a lot of times is the character and the screenplay visuals are important don't get me wrong and cinematography all of that stuff but if you don't care for what's going on or affecting the people on the screen it's really hard to get past all of the inconsistencies i mean one of my favorite films of all time big trouble in little china the reason why it's one of my favorite films of all time is because of the lead character jack burton say what you will how crazy that film is and you know maybe it has a ton of problems but you really get behind going on this adventure with Jack Burton because of how good that character is. Jack Burton is also one of the best characters in cinema history. I, like I know the it, bar you're, <laughs> you're bringing up all these films. It's like, let's talk about alien. I'm like, okay, well, yes, that's this. You want to talk about route, to Mount Rushmore of movies. Let's go ahead. Hey dude, look, if, if you're going to have a computer that sounds like, how how i get it if you're gonna throw monoliths in the snow at the end of the film if, if you're gonna have a garden in space and start doing callbacks to bruce stern and silent running if this movie does all of these callbacks and that's cool uh, awesome danny boyle you you saw these films alex i'm, I'm great you watch these films if you're going to put them in your fucking movie and you're going to go after that then you better deliver on some type of quality you come at the king, you better not miss. I, I understand. <laughs> yeah. If you're Can we going, talk about the third act now? Yeah, let's talk about the third act. Okay. <laughs> Who wants to go first? Let's let Brett go. I, yeah, Brett, I, you, I, got, I need to drink yeah, a water. Exactly. I feel like I, uh, I need to take a break. <laughs> I'm glad I'll be able to give Troy plenty of ammunition here. The third act is is um, not my favorite. Um, it's I still I think this is the third time that I've seen it, and I still struggle to tell 
is Pinbacker dead or alive? Is Pinbacker even real? Yeah. Is what? He, what, what, what? What? Is he? Yeah. What do you mean? Is he even he's real? Dead, right? What? Is, is he, he even real? Of course I, he's I, real. I don't. I don't subscribe to this. Is this theory? But is Pinbacker a construct of Kappa's insanity? What? <laughs> what? Huh? Is Pinbacker a construct of Kappa's insanity? Is huh. he just making up? That makes Pinbacker. That makes no sense. I I understand that, but there are theories. Out there's there, a, there's that, theories out there. There are artsy theories, Troy. Yes, there are, I, so, there are. Okay. Oh. <laughs> okay. Okay. That, so I don't know why that annoys me. But, okay, dazzle me. Go ahead. Okay. So now, is pinbacker? Pinbacker? Is it like God's will in a way? So is 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 him being a character in this movie supposed to show that? So sort of like natural selection, like the human race at some point in time has outlived its natural sort of way of life. And God has said, you know, at some point in time, God win the world as some people believe is this sort of showing that we're trying to evade the end of the world by <laughs> jumpstarting the sun. But you know, this being that is sort of the sun God sort of thing is on, like kind of on a one way mission to stop you know, it already stopped Icarus 1. It's going to stop Icarus 2. And I'd even argue that, do we know if it works? I know, like, at the end of the movie, so he, there's the quote that says, you know, if, if it, if the sun, you know, seems a little brighter that day, you know, you've known, you know, because eight minutes, you know, you'll know that we've, we've succeeded or not. It wasn't like it's a very hard affirmative that it worked. I mean, yeah. I think it's safe to say that it does, but you don't. There's no confirmation that oh, we saved everything and everything's fine. But but anyway, back to my original point. You know, it, it could be Pinbacker as, you know, God trying to stop man from basically not from you know stopping its own extinction. I don't know. Bullshit. So <laughs> you knew that. <laughs> Thank you for taking my well thought out. Theory. No, no, wiping your ass with it. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, I, the, so this whole idea of Kappa going insane and creating Pinbacker makes no sense because the entire plot device or discovery uh, depends on somebody else using the oxygen. So five people instead yes. of four. Yes, the computer definitely says there's five people. Yeah. When it is pulling out the mainframes, it definitely, the computer definitely says, you know, I can't read your biometrics, all this stuff. Then there's not even the point where the the airlock was manually disabled, manually, so someone would have to do it. So, yes. again, there are many, many holes. Um, yeah. I, so I, I don't believe it. I don't think it's true, but, you know, there are people who would try to argue that with you. And I think they're wrong. No, 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 I agree. I, but I, when I hear stuff like that, to me, that is that person who goes on the internet and says, Oh, I love not you, Brett. I love sunshine so much. And I've got to defend this third act and just rationalize the fact that it doesn't work by saying, well, Kappa went insane and did this, that, and the other. No, you, you sorry, but yeah, no, that's, that's, <laughs> that's reaching. That's yeah. reaching for, 
Now, do we like uh, the like the visualization of Pinback, like the the kind of distortion and? Okay, Troy. No, no, no. That's that was what I was hinting at because earlier. If you think that he is like a personification of like the sun, like you cannot look directly into the sun, so you can't look directly at Pinbacker. You know, like I get what they're going for. I don't get the like the distortion and stuff. It gets annoying. Yeah. It, it definitely gets frustrating. Um, I didn't. I wouldn't vehemently shake like that. Like Troy did. It's stupid. It just, yeah, it's it gets it definitely it, it gets annoying. There's no doubt. It's it's the art element, and again, I I think when they sat down to do it, it was a choice from editing, cinematography, anything of that nature. So to your point, Brad, I think they're trying to add an element and go, this is the slasher part of the film, but we're going to add some artistic qualities to how we film this guy and make it more interesting or visually interesting or more dynamic whatever kind of adjective you want to throw in there but at the end of the day it's a it it's a michael myers in space it's it's jason in space that's it really is leatherface it's it's alien it turns into alien yeah with with the you know (laughs) here's the thing i said earlier you know danny boyle has this um very diverse filmography and I love directors who go out there and want to pick up a bunch of different genres and try them out. Well, there's one genre I hope Danny Boyle never tackles, and that's the <laughs> slasher genre because he's terrible at it. I mean, that might be a bit no terrible. Over. Terrible. <laughs> and, oh, Troy. And Mark, Mark Strong's intro. I mean, when Cillian Murphy comes into the to the room and you get the whole you know arty uh, blurry thing, and Mark Strong's like, "Are you an angel?" It's like, what? What? Huh? That his whole little speech thing in the beginning. I'm sitting there scratching yeah. my head like what, drink how many times they say the word stardust. Like oh. you're stardust. I, don't, I don't know how many why are they saying stardust so time so many times? And and dude, if they have that whole garden like growing in the spaceship and he's all burnt up, you'd think they had an aloe plant or something that he could have used. Yeah. It's I, we understand do we know why there is that shift? Like so when that airlock, so basically the third act is when that airlock separates and there's that, you know, the separation, we go into this third act and it, it for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, it is like a line in the sand where we are a science fiction movie up to this point. And then after that, we are a slasher psychological thriller afterwards. And it is literally like you step over the line and then, there you are. You're going to a whole different place. It, it is one of the most jarring shifts in a movie. I think I can kind of remember. And I'm trying to think of Bro. the other one that I can compare it to is 28 days later when it kind of turns into like a military shooter at some point in time. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, it's, it's just really weird. I think so. I always find it interesting. And, and again, this is one of the things I picked up is you get, you, you get the shrink who's always sitting in front of the, or sitting in the observation, looking at the sun and he's, sure, he's jerking getting, off. Yeah, he's yes. getting more and more exposed to it. And he's starting to peel his skin. I feel like the pinbacker character is where the shrink would have ended up going. Had the shrink not died or become a martyr. So I, I think at some point you could draw a conclusion um, that psychologically you end up, on this ship going to the sun, you get fascinated with the sun 
So to all those elements about, you know, hey, maybe God is saying we got to let the planet go or you got to be one with the sun or whatever it is. Because he goes, even the shrink goes through that monologue of the difference between being in an isolation tank versus enveloped by the sunshine. And I think your pinbacker character is the natural evolution of where the shrink was supposed to go. But to your point, Brad, shrink's gone. Obviously, some stuff happened behind the scenes. You get this tonal shift. And so you as an audience member probably have to make that, I don't know, guess or assumption, logical jump that, you know, you saw the beginning of what Pinbacker was in the form of the shrink. And then this is what happens after seven years of staring at the sun. This movie is asking you to take some pretty long walks. Yes. With some, no with some yes. ideas. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I, I um, yeah, it again, I think it's it's trying to do something and I don't know, hide its its action roots or hide its slasher roots or something of that nature. So the third act to me is a great example. And I think everybody gravitates to the third act and says, well, this is out of place because you have a slasher film and it, and it just doesn't fit here. But my contention would be the third act actually fits in nicely with the rest of the film because this whole movie is just one big action disaster film or a slasher film, and it's Danny Boyle and Alex trying to layer in things that make it more important than what it actually is. It's mm. pig on a lipstick, or pig. On, I mean, lipstick on a pig. There, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> I mean, does do we know anyone who likes the third act? Have I? I mean, I, we know a lot of people who are movie people, and I, I don't know anyone who really thinks that it is a good shift. I don't know. I, I, I kind of wish. And my theory is like you're, you're saying that the, the psychiatrist was supposed to be the villain. It makes way more sense. And unfortunately that wasn't what was able to be done due to him actually having to leave for personal reasons. So, I mean, do we, again, it's hard to then say, well, then it's okay that they made this shift because, you know, they, they didn't get to do their original idea. I mean, just because your original idea falls out doesn't mean a bad idea is all of a sudden a good idea. Hey, I, make, making movies is hard, man. Stuff like that happens. In third, act, in third acts of movies, everyone always has a cool idea, what happens, and then the conclusion is always the hardest. I get it. I get it. But you, it wasn't like they wrote this over the weekend – like they two years, two years. Well, it, so think about how many movies that either something happens behind the scenes and you lose a star, you lose a director, you got a shift in the people behind the camera or in front of the camera, or you run out of money, or maybe your idea is so big that you have to compromise it because the studio says, well, we gave you 40 million, you're at 39 million. And so you only got a million left, right? I'm making a movie just has to be absolutely ridiculous. And the fact that sunshine is at, is out there probably given, you know, how much preparation went into it and, and the stuff that even happened with, with probably one character. I mean, gosh, it, that's gotta be super difficult, but it still strikes me as odd that if you go and look at the development portion of it, like you guys said, it was two years of prep work, three months of filming, then another year of editing and putting this thing together. So I wonder how many cuts of this movie they did. I think they were really struck. Like the reason why it went on for years, they were really struggling with what to do and where to take this thing. Yeah. Would it be, would it be a better film in your guys' opinions if they took out, I'll call it for lack of a better word, the supernatural elements and just, they focused on, okay, so they've lost those people. 
we know they have enough oxygen for a certain number of people. And it just turned into, I don't know, a, a psychological, they, these people are trapped in space. Here's their mission. So the mission's still the same, but instead of the sun God element and the God's will and the natural selection part, it just became sort of a, I don't know, it, it, there's six people on the ship and they've got enough oxygen for four. So then you've got more conversations like the one Chris Evans has with Michelle Yeoh and the other uh, Rose Byrne. And they're sort of talking about, do we, do we let him kill himself? If it went strictly that, would that make it a better film? No, because these people aren't interesting. You know, you'd have to do a lot of legwork <laughs> to make these people you'd have characters to rewrite the entire movie before you start to think, Oh, if, if Chris Evans is gone, you know, I'm going to miss X, Y, and Z because, you know, he's important because of this. You know, the only thing we know about him is he cares about that mainframe. You know, that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I I would have liked something like that because I, I do find that aspect of the film, and I think I said it earlier when they had that discussion, I go, oh, that's pretty interesting. And I would have liked something that maybe tapped more into that. But to Brad's point, in order for that to be successful, you would have had – to have really good character setup, right? So mm-hmm. again, Brad, hate to reference like the the pinnacle film Alien, but if you if you were to take those characters and then present something like that scenario, and it's not an alien, but them having to maybe deal with each other in some tough decisions, I think that would be super fascinating. But that's because they do a fantastic job of setting up the relationships and those characters right out of the gate. This one doesn't do that. It throws you into the action. It throws you into the disaster film elements right out of the to the gate and sticks to it. So at the end of the day, I only think you had something as dramatic as like a crazy guy running around trying to kill people. I mean, that, that's yeah, all you're I left mean, with. I mean, you know, there could have been like a religious zealot who thinks, you know, man shouldn't intervene into the, you know, the natural selection sort of thing. And, you know, maybe you could have leaned into that a little bit, but even then you're, you're still kind of turning it into a slasher film because you have a guy trying to stop these people from saving the world. But I mean, at least you're not making like this huge logical leap all of a sudden. Yeah. Right. I don't know. I agree hundred percent. So I, I'm, I'm with you. I don't know of anybody who likes the third act, although I do find people who try to defend it to a certain degree, but to me, I can defend the third act. Like I, I 100% really don't know if it's so much a tonal shift as it, it's just a great example of what is really laying underneath this film that just has this gloss on top of it. And well, it's it, identity crisis. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is an identity crisis, but at the end of the day, it, it it's just a very basic disaster action slasher film. I mean, it's, it's got those elements to it. And outside of that, it, it is kind of cold and empty. <laughs> Like space. Like you, Troy. Yeah, cold and empty like Troy. <laughs> like my cold beating heart. Well, what else? I, you want to talk about the music real Because I'll tell you this. I did love the soundtrack, the orchestral soundtrack. I, I want to be clear because the songs they played at the end of the film, which let's talk about the credit sequence. Let me dump on it one more time. You get a credit sequence <laughs> where you get a highlight reel, like a long trailer of the film you just watched with some crappy songs. That was dumb. But I did like yeah. the... I did like the orchestral portion of it. Yeah, it's got a great score. Um, and I think that that's a theme throughout all of Danny Boyle's films. Um, great music. And the Canada death scene, that music, I've heard it. You you hear it. I promise you the listeners have heard it somewhere else, not 
knowing that it came from this movie. Yeah, it's it's an amazing score. It, it, I would actually be interested in op- like listening to the soundtrack of the film in the future and just think about the film, but not actually have to watch the film again. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> Troy. Well, for me, for me, the whole thing centered around Troy comparing it more to Armageddon. And I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> Sorry, man. That was that was mean. I, it's not me. I hey, I'm. <laughs> All, all I'm saying is my reaction to Armageddon is now to the point that it's it's very similar to Sunshine. Will I watch Sunshine again? I'm I I probably will. Will I watch Armageddon again? I I probably will. But I would not now put Sunshine again. Going back to explain it, there's there's something about the rewatchability that has just dropped off. So I I don't know if it's because we're doing a podcast or we're being more critical of films. I don't I don't think that's it because. I've really championed some films here that we've talked about where I think people think I'm crazy, but there's just something about this film that at the end of the day, it, the rewatchability just grinds. I don't know what to say. I, Hey Brett, I didn't, I I thought my reaction was going to be, Brett's going to come on. We're going to just pour all the love on it, but I'm just telling you, Hey, if it's any consolation, I've, I've enjoyed it. I've, I, I I'll say this. I've enjoyed it. I certainly, it's hard to disagree with a lot of what you're saying. And I don't have, I don't have a lot of concrete stuff that I can change your opinion. For me, it's just now. And maybe like you said, uh, this is, I, I think this is my third time watching it. So maybe three times from now <laughs> I text you and I'm like, son of a bitch, you were right. No, I, at the end of the day, I, the, the whole idea isn't to have, you know, and trust me, I've tried to change Brad's mind about Dario Argento. It's not happening. The whole idea is 13 years in the making. I know the whole idea is not to, to get somebody on here and, and prove you're right or wrong. I mean, I, I love the fact you love the film. My daughter watched it with me. She liked it. Tabitha liked it. I just didn't have that reaction to it. I know Brad loves it. Um, I, I think the whole idea and why I love talking about films is you get to borrow people's perception. So I love the fact you love this film. I love the fact that Brad loves it. I I like to, I want to love it. And there are things that I like about it, but there's just too much. Every time I watch it, I'm like, yeah, I, I no, it's, it's not working anymore. So at one point it did, I can say that, but I, I don't know if it's because I've gotten older since last time I've seen it or You're a grumpy old man. I'm a grumpy old man. <laughs> I, I have a feeling that it has more to do with the films that I've seen in between sunshine sure, versus sure. now. Plus the number of times I've seen Sunshine. There's some films out there I know that I like, but I also know if I go watch them two or three times, I won't like them anymore. So, time for the question? Yes. All right. Well, Brett, obviously, I think we know where you're going to land on this, but we have spent a good amount of time talking about Danny Boyle's Sunshine from 2007. So, I got to ask you, Brett, is Sunshine a bomb? Stick to my guns here. It is not. It's not a bomb Not a bomb. Awesome. Brad, what about you? I mean, because you kept saying I love this movie. I, I think I I enjoy this movie. Like I said, the lifting you have to do with this movie gets pretty pretty easy to watch. And, you know, sometimes with a science fiction movie, say Interstellar or Blade Runner, there's a lot of sort of mental gymnastics you have to do because they're so complex. Here, you're just watching people ride a bomb into the sun. And at some point in time, a monster comes and, you know, the monster is real weird and it's out of place, but 
I think ultimately this film is still enjoyable and I I like it as a light sort of science fiction film, which I still think visually looks amazing. Like the way that spaceship moves and the sun and I like it. I enjoy the visuals. So I'm going to say it's not a bomb. Okay. So you're outvoted, Troy. So I am outvoted. <laughs> well, hey, I, for me, it, it's not working anymore. If, if we had this discussion many years ago, uh, probably the second or third time I saw it, I'd, I'd be with you guys. Hey, it's got flaws. Uh, and, and I'll say this today. I can't remember a visual effect like the sun or what they do with that, that just nobody's come close. It, it's absolutely gorgeous to look at. But for me, this, this movie is definitely a bomb now. It, it wasn't. I don't know what's happened since then. I, I just, I don't know. It, it probably doesn't help that Michelle Yeoh didn't kick one face in this film. And that just, man, that's just, that's horrible, man. It's Michelle Yeoh. Let, to her, overcome. let her, let her do what, what she's good at. But um, anyways, Brad, next week is my pick. So I'm going to probably pick another director that I'm, I'm super excited to talk about, and I'm sure we'll have a lot of opinions on. But I thought, uh, and this I believe is a part of our original list too, but I thought we would, I don't know, have a little fun and talk about The Man from UNCLE. What do you think? Yeah, I'm excited for that. Um, nice. Yeah, yeah. Have I, you- I, have a, I have a lot to say. I've not actually seen that movie all the way through. so Really? Yeah. Okay, well, it came out in 2015. It's based on a TV show, and um, Henry Cavill, Army Hammer, Alicia Vikander star in it. So if you're playing along, it, it's very easy to find. I, I'm sure it's on multiple yes, streaming sites. Yes. So uh, next week, we're going to have a little spy fun and talk about The Man from Uncle from 2015. And I, I don't know about you, Brad. I'm going to check out some of the old television shows because it was a TV show. That and Wild Wild West, I think, was the other one. When it was on syndication, I used to catch every once in a while and uh, seemed to enjoy it. So I'm going to go back and uh, see if I can watch a couple of the of the episodes and get a feel for it and see how good the movie is in comparison to the TV show. I get to mention that Revolver is one of my least favorite films of all time. So we're talking about Guy Ritchie, too. So. Yes, it'll be fun to talk about Guy Ritchie. I think, our, again, to uh, drop another, I don't know, mention of Alex McAllister and his friend... Friends with Cinefets, he did do The Gentleman by Guy Ritchie that I think came out at the beginning of 2020, so that's a great episode. Go listen to that one. But yeah, we're going to talk about all things Guy Ritchie, Man from Uncle. Um, it, it did bomb, so I, I'm, I'm excited. Um, we got some email. You, you want to read yeah. one of them? I'll take, how about I take Alex's and then you take Phillips? How about that? Perfect. Go for it. Um, I will skip the kind of first two paragraphs real quick and get to the meat of the um, there's one thing I noticed, and this is from Alex uh, from Cin- Friends with Cinefits talking about uh, Love and Monsters, which I actually, while we were while we were recording, our friend Josh texted me and said he just watched Love and Monsters and loved it. So, Brett, have you seen Love and Monsters yet? I'm not, but okay. I, 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 well, I do want to check it out and I, when I saw you guys did it. You, yeah. you have to watch it. And, and we're, ch- we're championing that movie. Yeah, it's funny, Brad, because I've gotten a lot of texts and emails that now people listen to that uh, episode have gone out to catch it and have fallen. That's all I want. If there's one thing that we get from this podcast is to find a movie like that and put it out there and and just our friends just fall in love with it as much as we did. So that's awesome. So go ahead. Okay. 
So I'll leave you. There was one thing I noticed as it was happening that I don't think you guys mentioned, but it made me appreciate the movie even more. Joe believes his travels. Oh, Joe begins his travels without knowing much. As you guys mentioned along the way with the help of some friends, he picks up on instincts and skills that help him see the warning signs and the dangers of the monsters. Now, when he gets to where his girlfriend, quote unquote, girlfriend is, he uses those same instincts to determine that the Aussie guy and his pals are also also monsters in a different way. At one point, it, it, it makes it obvious that he's with the poison berries and Joel knows that uh, they are baddies. However, I saw a lot of the interactions before then that he knew not to trust these people. It's subtle to where audiences see the handsome Aussie guy and think, oh, Joel is just jealous. But I thought it was more the fact that his instincts could see danger lurking beneath the surface. He had no reason not to like the guy, but at one point, I think he even says, I don't like this guy. I'm not sure it was something written to purposely be in the movie, but I definitely saw it as him utilizing everything he learned on his journey. And despite everything happening to be safe, he wasn't immediately gullible and took his time to assess the situation. This movie was so much fun and was really cool getting to hear you guys talk about a movie that you both liked. I feel like when every, t- every time people talk about films we both liked, it's always a, a slide at me. But now this one is a slide at you. So there, Troy. <laughs> so thank you for recommending the movie. And here's to hoping that we get even more uh Dylan O'Brien in the future. Agreed. Yes, Dylan O'Brien. Thanks, Alex. Snubbed from the award season. I, I look at that list and I don't understand why Dylan O'Brien didn't get some kind of mention. Man, he's the best thing I saw last year. So our next email comes from Philip. Hey, Philip. Thanks for writing in. And he sent us a suggestion. Uh, I was thinking of this other offbeat movie from the 80s that is largely forgotten. It's called Special Effects from 1984 written and directed by Larry Cohen, who had hits before and after, but this one fell under the radar. It had an interesting cast, including Eric Bogosian and Zoe Lunn, a.k.a. Zoe Tamerilis, who was plagued by drug addiction and died young. It's an interesting little thriller that kind of defies being put in one category. I agree with you. I've seen that film. I own it. And I do think we should add that to the list, Brad. We should <laughs> Shut up, man. Uh, it's, it's, it is... And I'll tell you what, the reason why I bought it was because of Eric Bogosian. I don't know if you've ever seen a film called Talk Radio. And uh, I think I put that on our list. But we're adding special effects because I do want to bring this one up. I agree with okay. him. It, it defies logic. Okay. So, you know, on IMDb, it has like the key, the plot keywords. Mm-hmm. Here's the five plot keywords for this movie. Murder of a nude woman. Actress. <laughs> voyeur. Snuff film. And film director. Oh, yeah. On the list. It's a weird wow. one. It's a weird okay. one. Okay. <laughs> so you mentioned something towards the beginning of the show, especially when we were talking about the captain, right? He has a new movie coming out this year, and the trailer dropped. So you, you wanted to talk about that for a minute. Yeah, we never talk about trailers. And for some reason, I saw this Mortal Kombat trailer and I don't know if I've been more excited for, I don't know if it's because we haven't really had movies like that are like this in a while, but for some reason, the Mortal Kombat movie has me so excited. And A, yes, I love Mortal Kombat. The original movie, unapologetically love it. I think it's dumb. Christopher Lambert as Raiden is one of the most baffling like 
casting decisions of all time. All he does in that movie is laugh. Um, at one point in time, Reptile is a cartoon on the screen because, you know, it, it's just so weird. And Scorpion's spear has a mouth. Anyway, it's dumb, but I love it. And I've been a real big fan of the recent video games starting from Mortal Kombat, you know, 9 and then 10 and the most recent one. Um, so I've just been really, really excited for this. And they did that Mortal Kombat Legacy, which kind of brought Mortal Kombat like into the real world sort of thing and gritty. And when that trailer hit, man, it's like, holy crap, it looks so good. The action looks great. There's fatalities. It's hard R. Uh, that red band trailer is bloody. I mean, Sub-Zero freezes Jax's arms off. And like, yeah, that's how he gets his metal arms in this. So yeah, I'm really excited. And somebody for Jezebel, I don't know if you're all are familiar with that website, wrote this article about someone forgetting to put Chun-Li in Mortal Kombat. And for anyone who doesn't know, Chun-Li is a Street Fighter character. And they had to go back and say, oh, sorry, apparently... Uh, Chun-Li is not a part of the Mortal Kombat universe. <laughs> so like an article went through the editor, the person put all this stuff together and didn't like confirm that what they thought was true was actually true. So anyway, I love that trailer. Um, I was just kind of curious on kick what ass. you guys thought. So yeah. What'd you think, Brett? Oh, I thought it was kick ass. I, you know, we were texting about it. Brad and I were, and we were, uh, you, you were on that text too, Troy, that, yep. They they tease us with the original music at the end of the is if that music is in that movie, which I think they will. I, they I have they four play. seconds to yell Mortal Kombat in the Mortal Kombat movie. It's like Lion King. If it doesn't do that first part, <laughs> then it fails. It has to go beat, 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 Mortal Kombat, and then the music has to kick in. By the immortals, by the way. Are you, you gotta anyway. walk out if that doesn't happen? Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna walk out of my own house, but yes, okay, because I'm <laughs> don't think I'm gonna see this in the theater because they're still not open around us, but yes, uh, I loved it. I loved it. Um, the the cast is awesome. I, I think the the action is gonna because I too I love the original Mortal Kombat. I think this this these action scenes are just gonna kick all kinds of ass. Um, the fatalities look awesome the director said there were some days that they were filming that was hard to stomach because some of these fatalities are going to be so gruesome and that's what you know that's fans of mortal kombat the game have been begging for this for for years and once the mortal kombat legacies dropped i think that repeat reignited unintended reignited all of our interest and then so once trailer dropped i think a lot of our fears were put to rest because this thing looks awesome yeah i don't did you guys see i think it was last year but warner brothers animation did a mortal Kombat animated film called scorpion's revenge did you catch that yeah yes i just i just got it uh probably a month ago and watched it i, I same thing I, I think i watched it a week or two ago that was really entertaining loved it it's very gruesome so when the live action trailer was going to hit the, the thought in my head was, I wonder what it's going to be like in comparison to this gruesome adult R-rated Mortal Kombat animated film they just did. And I got to tell you, they delivered. Um, and I, I, I'm with you guys. Of all the stuff that I have seen 
uh, trailer wise, I can't remember the last time I've just been this excited. And like you said, Brett, I think the choreography is going to be really good. Even the little bits that they show, it looks imaginative. Uh, the the fact that Sub Zero freezes some guy's blood and then stabs him with it is just oh, insane. <laughs> but this it looks gorgeous. It I, I don't know I I can't think between between that and Godzilla versus Kong. I, I really think the first part of this year just has some stellar lineup, and and I'm probably more excited for this than the Godzilla Kong film, which I didn't think I would be. I thought that would be the one that I'm totally hyped at, but you know, between this and, and what's the other, uh, nobody, uh, was it, what's his name? Odenkirk, uh, that film. Yeah. That looks fantastic. I, it's going to be a good, I don't know, good start to the year in terms of action films. And, and I think like giant spectacles. So you're going to get, I think you're going to get part of that sub zero scorpion sort of, you know, sub zero killing off Scorpion yeah, origin story almost. Yeah, because you know yeah, you see two starts. You see two. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they they do that in the animated film because there were scenes in the animated film that looked uh they they showed in the trailer and it looked like they pulled it from the animated film. Yeah, so yeah. I, so I think I that's wait. like Sub Zero, like the Bihan sort of Sub Zero, which is like the original. So yeah. Sorry. So one thing I want to do before we sign off too is we love kind of promoting. Uh, other podcasts and uh, again if you haven't listened to friends with cinefits that's on our website uh, please also check out the vhs files podcast with a good friend josh eric that whole uh, crew and also gentleman's guide to midnight cinema we just had sammy on recently the other thing that i want to talk about is gold ninja video so i am a huge fan of just buying physical media and i really like some of these i don't know boutique places that pop up and they're carrying films that, you know, mainstream distributors won't do. And everything that gold ninja video, I, I think it's goldninjavideo.com, Everything they put out there. I've, I probably have bought because either one, it's a film that I've seen or heard about and I want to own it. Or two, when you read the description of the film, especially their independent stuff, it just kind of intrigues you and, you know, for a Blu-ray, 15 bucks, they're, they're a company out of Canada. That's a pretty good buy. And their Blu-rays always come with these amazing special features. So uh, they did a Donnie Yen set. They only make about 500 per title. So if you're interested in the film, you got to get it quick because they yeah. do sell out. But as an example, they did a Donnie Yen film. And what's cool about uh, their special features is a lot of times they'll put additional films on there just as special features. So one of the films caught my eye just from the title, and it is a film by Dennis Rule called Unlucky Stars. The reason why that just, I, it interested me is because of the Sammo Hung series, uh, My Lucky Stars, that Jackie Chan Yim Biao also had cameos or co-starring in. And when I saw the trailer, the trailer just looked like a fun, independent uh, martial arts action film. Guys, I got to tell you, you have to go to this website. You have to buy this film. It is so much fun. It is, I, I don't know, it, it felt like they went to a time machine, went back to Hong Kong, and were filming uh, back in the 80s and 90s. And half of the fun of this film is if you are a Hong Kong junkie like myself, and you've seen anything from like Eastern Promises to Writing Wrongs to just anything from, you know, Jackie, Sammo, Michelle, any of their filmography, Dick Way, all of them, they're in this film 
and it's so much fun. There, the choreography in here, it is the first film in a long time I have gone back and just paused and watched the scene three times to kind of figure out, what, did they use wires on that? How did that guy do that? Come to find out they didn't. And, and even behind the scenes, they're showing some of the stunt work they did where guys are flying out the window and instead of landing on mats or pads, they're using like Home Depot boxes, which is sort of a callback to what they would do in Hong Kong with Apple boxes and stuff like that. So lots of special features. It's a really fun film. Uh, Again, if this sounds interesting to you, go buy it now because they only are publishing about 500 copies of it. And yeah, they're uh, hand, hand numbered 500 copies. Yeah. And it's, it's a definite must buy for any action junkies out there. It's, it's, it's just a great fun film and check out that website. They got a lot of stuff on there. That's, that's super interesting and intriguing. And, and I, I love kind of talking about those type of companies because they're, they're really trying to bring something different, um, to the cinephiles out there. So Brad, uh, if anybody wants to reach us, how do they do so? How do they send us some awesome recommendations like, uh, Alex and Philip and all of our friends? Uh, that's not a bomb pod at gmail.com. And then we're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at not a bomb pod. So find us, let us know, uh, recommendations, all that stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. forget to tell you, your good friend, Kevin had sent a message too for a recommendation. Penn and Teller get killed. So, you know, Penn and Teller, the, uh, yeah, I know Penn and Teller. Okay, Thanks. Just make sure. <laughs> I totally forgot about that film. So I added that to the list. So awesome recommendation, Kev. So Brett, I, man, I feel bad that we asked you on and we know you're excited about this film and, and I'm glad I was a differing opinion. Okay. I'm just somebody, sure. somebody just listened to you and may miss this film. Also, hey. if you went to, if you went to prom with Troy junior year, yes, you are please. valued. Yes. We appreciate you. Yes. You're, you're more a, than just a pretty face. Yes. I'm sure your personality is amazing. Exactly. I, I, Troy, that. I'm sorry. It was it it, I, it was an okay night. I kind of like sunshine. I guess it was an okay film. There just wasn't much there. We didn't have much in common. Not much to talk about. And that was it, man. So sorry. again, I'm just more surprised you went to your junior year prom. So why? Good on you. What? What did? What's wrong with that? Nothing. Okay. I just I don't know. Well, you make it sound like it's a bad thing. <laughs> I just thought you would have like stayed at home and watch kung fu movies. Yeah. Well, I, I okay. <laughs> I'm just I I I do like to get out. Um, okay. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know you do. I've I'm still hungover <laughs> from a bachelor party. I was with you once. Oh yeah, uh, we were all three were there. Yeah. Oh, man, what a night. Okay. Well, hey, look, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, the evening. Thank you for listening. Brett, thanks for coming on. I can't wait to have you again. And I'm, I'm sure we're going to pick an awesome film that all three of us just love. And we're going to rave about it. So please, please. I look forward to that. Awesome. Pleasure's all my guys. I always enjoy coming on. And um, for all of you listening, thanks for downloading. If, if you like us, leave us a review. We'd, we'd love to hear what you think about us. And um, with that, have an awesome day. Thank you. Have a nice day.